Welcome everyone to a very special episode of Fergo and the Freak. I'm your host, the Glorious League Freak, and today I'm joined by Rugby League historian and Rugby League statistician, Andrew Ferguson, and we're about to embark on a journey that will take you through a very important part of Rugby League history in Australia. Yes, both of us have been doing a lot of very thorough research on this one. Um, explains why we haven't done a history episode for quite a long time. Been working on this beast of a thing. And uh, look, this is going to be something that is looking at the birth of professionalism in rugby in Australia, which caused the start of rugby league. And um, we'll also go through the 1908 season in full to go through everything that happened to form the game, how the clubs all formed, all that sort of stuff. But to start with, we're going to talk about how the the roots of the game started and where they came from. Now, there's there's a mythology about it that we kind of all know. And the amazing thing that Andrew has done over the course of many months with his research that he's done is he's fleshed out the actual story about what happened and grounded it in reality. So it's not this sort of fairy tale of how it all started. And Andrew's told me some of the um, important parts of it, but there are many, many other things that I'm going to learn along the way. And just this is going to be such a fantastic episode and I can't wait for it. So let's rock and roll. Let's rock and roll, right? We're going to start the story in 1899 when Lewis Abrams, a Glebe Rugby Union board member, was appointed president of the Metropolitan Rugby Union for the upcoming 1900 season. Now, the Metropolitan Rugby Union was formed by the New South Wales Rugby Union to administer all of the competitions being played in Sydney, which at that time was just the major competition and the lower grades. And um, it was it was something I'm not too sure if they felt like they really needed to do it, but I think at that time, kind of like when the New South Wales Rugby League itself began, the New South Wales Rugby Union kind of was the governing body for rugby union in the country. So it probably felt like it had other tasks that need to do. So we needed just a separate body to run rugby union. So that's why they were set up. And Lewis Abrams was the first president of that board. Now, I mentioned Abrams in the episode we did on Glebe quite a while back. So he started out as an alderman for the Glebe Council, uh, was there from 1893 to 1898, had a lot of uh, involvement in a lot of sporting groups in Glebe. So he's the secretary of the Glebe Cricket Club for nine years, president of the Bicycle Club and secretary of the Glebe Free Trade and Liberal Association. And this is something we're going to find a lot of too. There's a lot of politicians in all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so Abrams was largely responsible for the introduction of what was called electoral cricket, which was essentially the residential rule that would later be used in both rugby union and rugby league for many decades. He was also a key man involved in the creation of the uh, Metropolitan Rugby Union, which I'll try and refer to as the MRU to uh, save a bit of time, I guess, because we're going to mention them a lot. So in 1900, the MRU announced that clubs from Sydney University, eastern suburbs, north Sydney, Glebe, Newtown, western suburbs, south Sydney and Balmain would all field teams in all three grades of competition. Glebe was one of the first teams entered into the competition as it was seen as and I quote, a stronghold of sport. Glebe side and the new MRU saw them change their jersey colour from black, blue and yellow to the iconic maroon, or dirty red as I'd later be referred to. Abrams accepted the role of Glebe club secretary. The club patron was none other than Sydney Mayor Sir Matthew Harris. 
Harris was a very valuable man to have on board, as he wasn't just the mayor of Sydney. He was also president of the Wentworth Park Trust, a ground which had never had a game of football played on it before, but it would become Glebe's home ground in the 1900 season. Harris was also vice president of the Royal Agricultural Society, whose ground was also considered the marquee venue in Sydney at the time as well. Two very, very important people much further down the line and also for rugby union at the time. And two very important venues within not only rugby league, but sport in general uh, in, I mean, even to this day, really, but uh, throughout Sydney's history. This is right. So everything's going perfectly fine for a few years. It's not until about, around about the middle of 1903 that we start to get some mentions of not so much angst, but a little bit of agitation, I guess, by some players towards some of the officials. Um, Sean Fagan's book, Pioneers of Rugby League, he's mentioned a, a incident in there where a bunch of uh, players were getting a train to Brisbane uh, to go and play uh, an interstate game up there, which this tour included former, uh, sorry, future uh, rugby league players Alex Burden, Dini Lucky, Peter Moyer, and future secretary Ted Larkin. They all noticed the tour party included many, many rugby union officials from the New South Wales Rugby Union. One player said, there seemed to be as many officials as players on the trip. The situation was made worse when the officials ate oysters and drank whiskey on the train, but the players didn't get any. It's, it's interesting to, to hear the real-life experiences of the players and just what they were seeing through their eyes. And seeing it at that level through a train ride, not only taking that into account, but then they were going to Brisbane to play in front of a big crowd that they knew were paying money. And they would have started to do the math on all of it. Yes. So it's worth noting here too that at this time and from 1900 onwards, um, players who played representative football, a rugby union, outside of the state that they were playing their you know regular games in, their club competition in, they would get an allowance and they usually got their travel paid for. The allowance was basically a pittance. So in this case, in 1903, it was three shillings. I've done a bit of uh, bodged up maths to try and find out how much that might have been worth in today's money. Where do I write that? It'd be about $24. Man, it's a pretty good pl- price for a, a professional sportsman. <laughs> so, but before, before they even got on the train to make the journey out of Sydney to Brisbane, from that three shillings, they then were told they had to go and buy a straw boater hat to which they would be given a complimentary light blue blend, light blue band that would be added to the hat. So well, they already... didn't even give them the hats. No, no, just the just the light blue band that goes around the top of it, the decoration they gave them. So automatically they've already lost <laughs> probably a fair chunk of that uh, that small allowance that they had. And that it's not only it's not only thinking about like being paid for the game it's the time going to and from the game it's 
missing out on the work that they would be doing while they're going to this game. And you start to see where the allowance they were giving, they were giving the players was basically nothing. It was a token amount. This is exactly right. And when you've got crowds of 10, 20, 30, you know, even sometimes when the uh, British Lions came over or the New Zealand uh, Rugby Inside, the All Blacks came over, they would sometimes get for test matches 50,000 people coming in to watch the game, which is just insane. Mm. I mean, that's that's still a big crowd now. That's yeah. what it was like back then when the population was much, much smaller. Much smaller. And the other thing is too, like there, there wasn't a, a great deal of events going on at the time in – you know, any of these cities. So this was the event. This was the the big show in town. And these guys were the stars of the show. And they're getting their tiny amount of allowance and they're sitting on the train and they're watching all of the officials having oysters and whiskey. Yep. Meanwhile, they had to go and buy a hat. Mm. Um, in December 1903, James Joynton Smith who was the owner of the Brighton Racecourse, took out a lease on the Forest Lodge Pony Course. Now, what James Joint Smith liked to do in the uh, early 1900s is he would go and buy uh, either run-down racecourses and he'd invest a fair bit of money in them to do them up and get them functioning again. And then he'd sell them later on and obviously make a profit out of it. The Forest Lodge Pony Course was almost unusable it was so poorly run and he he put so much money into that and we'll we'll find out very soon how much to get it up and running now this forest lodge pony course later became known as harold park this is also important later on so this is that's to the end of 1903 uh february 12 1904 new south wales play england in a cricket match in sydney Nothing really noticeable about this, but New South Wales side contained Victor Trumper, who was the Australian Test opener batsman, and one of the openers, uh, one of the umpires, sorry, was James Gilton. I seem to remember those names. Yes, we we might hear about them a few times later on as well. <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was just something that I found along the way, and that's that's not just a random chance meeting uh, in the cricket circles. They come across each other quite a few times and not so much as Gilton has been an umpire. He got dismissed as an umpire for a poor performance shortly after this time. But he wasn't he wasn't disgruntled and he wasn't kicked out of the cricketing organisation. He became um, a tour manager. Mm-hmm. So he started running tours, not, not even tours interstate or overseas, even tours from Sydney to regional New South Wales, for example. So... He was still quite heavily involved as a prominent administrator after not being an umpire, but he was very close to being a test umpire. And it's really interesting to see these little groups of people fighting one another. Yes, I found this very interesting too. Mm-hmm. So March 23, 1904, the opening meeting of the MRU for the year, Lewis Abrams proposed that the allowance paid to representative players when playing outside of New South Wales should be modestly increased. The board rejected it. It wasn't even close. They shut him down. And he came to that idea after hearing about some of this disgruntled chatter from the train rides from the year before. Mm -hmm. 
what best way to deal with that than to give them a little bit of extra money, makes them happy, stops them from being complaining, we can all move on. And the thing too is that the money was there. That needs to yes. be remembered. Um, you know, it, it obviously wasn't going on the players. And as you said, the crowds were fantastic for these games. So the money was there and they flat out rejected the idea. Yep. Didn't even entertain it. Just shut him down, said no. And he will remember this. <laughs> and that's also interesting. Uh, June 24, 1904, James Joint Smith opens the Forest Lodge Racecourse, which he has renamed Epping Recreation Grounds. He's poured over 3,000 pounds into the renovations of the venue. So yep. what would that be? Uh, let's see. One pound is $158 today back then. So I forgot to do the nuts. So 3,000 times 158. Ugh. It's going to be around about 47000 No, $470,000. Wow. Jeez. He put in a lot of time and money and effort into fixing up these racetracks, and that was was a big one. It went from being a rundown venue that was barely used to one of the marquee horse racing venues in the state almost overnight. And the thing to remember about horse racing back then is it was one of the big events that were happening, you know, and so they were getting really big crowds at horse races back then, um, you know, and we see a little bit of that today. I mean, we, we've got some giant race courses around Australia and they're normally only filled for the big events, but they were filled much more regularly back then because it was something that people could go out and do and, you know, spend a day watching the horse races. Ed, there's probably even a chance you could have got a few money, a few bits of money at the end as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not often, but uh, yeah. Now, we're starting to see now, and it's 1904, that there's already a bit of chatter of discontent and already the board is aware of it and they're already just trying to discuss ways to shut it down. And it's only a tiny little bit, and we're in 1904. Things are about to pick up a little bit, though. Not fast, but just a little bit. So in July 6, 1904, the British Lions rugby union team tour over to Australia. And on their sixth game of the tour, they play against Northern Districts. During this game, it was alleged that British player Dennis Dobson swore at the referee. Dobson was immediately sent off. England's captain, David Bettle Sivright, was incensed at the decision and ordered his team to leave the field in protest before being coerced to return to the field. Pat Walsh was one of the five Northern Districts players that supported the referee's decision at the ensuing investigation into what was known as the Dobson incident by the New South Wales Rugby Union. The New South Wales Rugby Union, though, surprisingly sided with the English players, claiming that the referee had heard wrong. The reason why they did this is they didn't want to have any threat that the tour would be cancelled or there'd be some sort of discontent or England would say, we're not doing this and they'd all go home because there's a lot of big gates that would have been coming in. Uh, by having the English rugby union side here and to lose those would have cost the rugby union a lot of money. And and that really shows that aspect of the rugby union administrator's thought process too, that it wasn't about keeping the sport, um, you know, hovering above the rest of us. They were purely worried about the financial side of things. And if it meant 
throwing away the integrity of the referee, they were going to do that because they needed to make sure they had that money there. Oh, yeah. Exactly that. This would be the first of a number of um, issues, I guess, Pat Walsh would have with the rugby union. And it would then go from, it would expand further from being an issue that Pat Walsh had to an issue that his home area, Newcastle, would have. And so you could see that these things will just blow out pretty quick. Because I suppose, too, back in those days, there would have been a lot of talk of the rest of New South Wales versus Sydney as well. Mm-hmm. So that's probably p- playing a role as well. Well, you, you mean, you look at it, it still happens these days, you know, where um, there's that discontent between how much focus Sydney gets from, you know, politicians and things like that to the rest of the state. And back then, I mean, you had like places like Newcastle were just trying to establish themselves still to a certain extent. And, you know, though the big smoke is about Sydney. You know, that's a saying about Sydney. And, you know, you can see that. And it's really interesting to see all of these little things folding into one another already. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah. So the three weeks later, on July 23, 1904, Australia played Group Britain in a test match at Brisbane's Exhibition Ground. Glebe's forward Alex Burden, playing in his third consecutive test for the Wallabies, scored the opening try that gave his side a 3-0 lead at halftime. During the second half, though, he suffered a very heavy knock to his shoulder, which forced him to leave the field. Typical style, though, he returned 17 minutes later. But it wasn't enough. Great Britain went on to win the game 17-3. For Burden, though, it was the start of an extended layoff from playing from work. Uh, sorry, from playing and from work. He would return for the following season, but he ended up with a niggling shoulder injury, which would take quite a bit of time to heal because he wasn't too sure what it was. Obviously, Medicine and, and medical, you know, services back then weren't what they are now. So, and when you had to go back to your job the following day, you weren't going to risk going to the doctor and getting bad news. You just go to work and, and work through it. Yeah, and that, the other thing too to remember is that there wasn't a social safety net for people back then. If you couldn't work, you couldn't earn money. And that was it. There was no, there was nothing there to save you if you couldn't work. And so when you think about it that way, all of these sportsmen that were going out playing a really physical sport like rugby is, it was a risk and it was something that they had to weigh up. And that also has to be taken into account. This is right. And for Burden, I believe he was a hairdresser or a barber. So Mm -hmm. not being able to use your arms is pretty important. Mm. So that was that was two major incidents that happened in 1904. As you can see, we're starting to build up a bit of a resume, I guess, against the administrators of rugby union. It's still very small, though. In April 29 of 1905, James Joyton Smith is one of two men interested in purchasing land at Albion Park next to the racetrack. I think it's where the hotels were. Uh, two months later... After playing a starring role in New South Wales against Queensland, Pat Walsh is oddly dropped from the state side, confusing everybody. The referee newspaper stated, Walsh's exclusion is simply a Chinese puzzle. No one could understand why he wasn't picked. He was reported everywhere as being the best lock forward in all of Australia and had been for years. And all of a sudden, he's not picked. 
and no explanation given why. Mm-hmm. August 5, 1905, Bowman player Joe Apolloni sent off after the referee claimed he was struck by him. The Daily Telegraph stated he struck at the referee. Another newspaper, the referee, stated that Apolloni came into conflict with the referee whom he attempted to strike. And this is the thing, the media, because journos had to be there to report on it, if they're not standing in the same spot, they're sitting in different locations, they're going to get two different versions of what happened. Yeah. And this is what's happened here. It was never known whether Apolloni struck the referee or not. The following week, the MIU held a unique meeting to discuss the situation, but defer their decision until a further meeting. However, the Balmain delegate at the meeting, Pat McQuaid, revealed that Apolloni is set to be disqualified despite the fact that McQuaid presented 25 pages of witness statements defending Apolloni, while the referee, Mr. Nelson, only produced one page of evidence. The committee sided with the referee and it was decided that Apolloni would be suspended for a number of years yet to be decided. Wow. This is the start of some dramas between the Balmain Club and the rugby union officials, and that also becomes important. August 14, two days later, Balmain Rugby Union hold an urgent meeting about Apolloni. The committee move a motion that Balmain withdraw from the competition as a protest against the action of the union. The resolution was narrowly defeated by one vote. That's, uh, I mean, that within itself shows their sides starting to be drawn in a lot of different areas within sport within Sydney and New South Wales. You know, it, it's not, there are people within sport in New South Wales at this time that are starting to ask questions and they're starting to want something better to happen. And they're starting to take stands too, which is really interesting. Yes. So two days after the Bowman meeting, the MRU have confirmed that Joe Apolloni is to be disqualified for a total of 10 years. Wow. <laughs> Uh, and Balmain just wear it because the because they voted to their their vote was to stay in the league or leave it, and that was defeated. Mm-hmm. They had to stay in there. They just had to wear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, November nineteen oh five, Pat Walsh leaves Australia and travels to South Africa, where he played in an expatriate Aussie rules competition, which was held in Johannesburg. He was vice captain of the Commonwealth football team, which went on to win the title in nineteen oh five. So they've already forced one star player to leave the country. Yeah, and he, the thing is, he's looked at his options, and and that's a really important part of that story. Yes. Uh, April 1906, James Gilton and managed a Sydney representative cricket side on a tour to Goulburn. The Sydney side contained Victor Trumper. And I probably wouldn't be surprised if this is where they started to form a bit of a friendship. Mm-hmm. Uh, Same month, Walsh travels from South Africa to Auckland to play in their local rugby competition and is immediately signed by Parnell. He was so good that he earned selection in an Auckland province side that toured the South Island shortly after. In May 21, 1906, several New South Wales state rep cricketers are suspended for agreeing to play against England in a team sponsored by the Melbourne Cricket Club, including Victor Trumper and Monty Noble, two test players. Mm -hmm. Gilton and publicly sided with the suspended cricketers. 
July 14, 1906, Glebe hosted Auckland City at the SCG. In a close-fought match, Glebe trailed 11-8 with 10 minutes remaining when Glebe's George Riddell and Auckland's George Little, very similar names, collided heavily when they both attempted to kick a loose ball. The collision saw both players suffer an horrific broken leg. Ooh. The sight of the injuries was so severe that the referees and the players agreed to call the game off early and the players were sent to St. Vincent's Hospital. Coincidentally, the same two players had collided with each other in a game just 12 months prior, which resulted in both of them suffering broken collarbones. Oh, jeez. And, like, can you imagine how catastrophic a broken leg like that would have been back then? Like, oh. I mean, they, they would have said it and everything, but all of the follow-up, you know, medicine that we just take for granted today, they don't have. And then just getting around is going to be so difficult you know and yeah. it, it's silly things like you know the paved roads and stuff like that are not as good the footpaths are not as good the, the, nobody knows the words disabled access back then <laughs> no so you know you, you get a broken leg that has got to be set you are basically immobile and you can't work this is exactly right uh, the collarbones probably would have been worse for them because they wouldn't have been able to use their arms. Yeah, yeah. Just they might have been able to do some admin stuff with a broken leg. Just terrible, terrible injuries. And that's the thing that I think sometimes gets forgotten in this, that, you know, there were ca those catastrophic style of injuries back then uh, and the medicine wasn't there and, and the the net to to get you, the social net, wasn't there. And I think also too, the other thing too is the conditioning and the physical strength and muscle development, all that sort of stuff, wasn't there either for the players. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you could get an injury like that, and by the time you're healed up, your body is physically broken down. Yeah, because you you haven't. I mean, even the nutrition back then, and the just the the medicine like penicillin. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Like it, things, there were just things they didn't have back then. That's right. And, and that needs to be remembered while we're talking about all of this, because when players that are running out there see two guys break their legs that badly, there would there would have been a thought of, are these guys going to survive? And it sounds silly, yeah. But it it was a real possibility back then, especially if they had. I couldn't find any information as to whether they were. Um, fractures that broke the skin or not. Mm -hmm. But given that it was a horrible sight, I wouldn't be surprised if it was. Mm. So you then run in the risk of infections and stuff like that. It, it's it's gruesome and it's crazy to think that they they did a similar incident the, the year before and broke collarbones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, now the Glebe Club decided to hold a benefit concert to raise funds for both players. Glebe officials asked the New South Wales Rugby Union to support their campaign. However, the request was declined because the New South Wales Rugby Union would not support any activity that gave players money for their involvement in the game. Glebe decided to go ahead with the fundraising anyway and managed to raise £45 for each player, which is about three months' pay. And, and like, the thing to remember, and because it brings it into reality, it takes it from being the story that we've heard and brings it to reality. 
this is their friend. This is their their teammate who can't work, you know, and he's got a very serious medical issue. And they just want to try and do something good for him. And the rugby union authorities are saying, no, you can't do that. And they went ahead with it anyway. Once again, they made a stand on it. And you can you can just see the different things that the layers that are starting to build upon each other and the real people that are involved you know it, it's not just a story that you hear where it's it's an idea floating around like this is things that are affecting people's lives daily and their teammates are seeing it and the club officials are seeing it and then add to that like can you imagine what it would be like for a player back then who was involved in that game and they see an injury like this and then they go home to their wife or their wife is at the ground and they talk about what's happened and they say, you know, he's got a broken leg. He won't be able to work for many months. There's, there's considerations that players have to make about their lives and whether playing the game just for the love of the game is worth it when there's so much on the line out there. This is right. And look, for, for Glebe, and to a lesser extent, Balmain as well, uh, not much has changed as far as the size of those suburbs, mm-hmm. uh, even today. Mm. But back then, very small communities within Sydney. Yeah. And they were, they were labourer communities. They all worked on the docks around that area there. Mm-hmm. So they were all very close-knit, especially Glebe, very close-knit uh, community, that one. Um, the players would often be seen at the pub, drinking with the fans after games and stuff because that's what they did. Mm-hmm. So you knew all the players personally. They're like your mates out there you are watching. Uh, so that's the end of 1906. And again, we're starting to see a bit of drama there. Actually, met, forgot to mention, uh, after that, after that game, about a week later, former Glebe Rugby Union board member Joe McGraw publicly criticised the New South Wales Rugby Union for not helping Burden back in 1904 or Riddell in this instance here in 1906. The Rugby Union shortly after agreed to provide extra financial assistance to both Riddell and Little. Just one-off payments, so it's not a system that they've brought in. It's something they've done because there's a bit of backlash out there Mm -hmm. and they just want to nip it in the bud. That's basically what's going on. So that's what they do. They they provide a little bit of money there. It's enough to quell the animosity that's going on at the time. So now we move into January of 1907, and there was a meeting held at the Batemans Hotel. That will also come up later on, uh, which was being which was convened, and I quote: "To urge the removal of the disqualifications imposed by the Cricket Association upon the leading players of New South Wales." Uh, Trumper is at that meeting. Mm-hmm. It worked. They they got their bands lifted. Uh, April 3, 1907, at the meeting of the MRU, Mr. A.W. Green moved on behalf of Mr. E.S. Marks, who was absent, and I quote, that an accident fund be instituted within the Metropolitan Rugby Union. A lengthy discussion took place before going to a vote where the motion was defeated by 10 votes to 9. Wow, that was close. The next business of the meeting saw the secretary receive an increase of his salary to £250 per year. Wow. Holy. 
That's uh, a little bit outrageous. Yes. <laughs> the lack of accident cover meant that the onus of insuring players from injury fell to the clubs and possibly even directly onto the players themselves if the clubs didn't want to do it. This is a big, big issue for all the players. Mm-hmm. And again, we've seen another incident where we can we can help the players out. We've got the money. They've had some huge years for crowds and some big tours go on. The money's there. They can do it. And they say, nope. And, and on, mm-hmm. on, top, on top of that, they give themselves a pay rise. Yeah. So back then, the average, the average labor salary was two hundred pounds a year. So the secretary of the New South Wales Rugby Union had moved his up to two hundred fifty pounds per year. So he's being paid more than the man slaving away at, on the docks. This supposed to get paid more to sit at a typewriter. Yeah, I'm talking like from the mindset of the players themselves, but. Not only sit at the, you know, I go to work and I bust my backside every damn day and then I come out and I play this game, which I don't get paid for. We get huge gates and all of my graft and all of my hard work to help get people through the gates leads to someone else getting money that they didn't earn. And the and it's like everyone would have been talking about it. You You couldn't not talk about it, you know, especially when, you know, the previous year you've been dealing with players that have been very badly injured. Um, you've done fundraisers for those players and, and the the discontent had been there for a few years now and then this happens. And you can see where the players and club officials are just, I mean, they must have been so angry when they heard about what had happened, the way the vote had gone, and then they vote through a pay rise that that's outrageous so the the discontent is simmering and it's mm-hmm. on a, a few different fronts there's selections there's supporting referees when it when it suited the the union and not the players there's not helping players who are injured even those who have been hospitalized mm-hmm. uh, and then and then that matter there as well it's like they're constantly shooting themselves in the foot and ignoring all of the criticism that's coming their way. Meanwhile, they've got plenty of money as well to, to deal with all of this straight away and could have done years ago. And that's the weird thing about this whole situation is that, like, I don't know. It's hard to tell whether at the time they had isolated themselves from the complaints or they just completely dismissed them it seems as though they just dismissed the complaints and it's hard to see why they would do that it's probably just because they wanted to hoard the money simple yeah that's what it seems like doesn't it because you know when you look at the decision that they made with the the british and irish lions tour and that they were very they were worried that that was going to get called off and they were very focused on the money there it really does just seem like they just wanted to keep all the money like it's hard to find another reason why they were making all of these decisions that make sense other than they just wanted to have their cake and eat it too yes 
And it's one thing to keep the money if you're being frugal everywhere to save money. But that's also not the issue because, as we spoke about back in 1903, they're dining on oysters and whiskey. Yeah, they're living it up on this money. So they're not being frugal at the same time. And then they're just giving themselves a pay rise. Mm -hmm. The following month, May 1, the referee reports the announcement that a syndicate in New Zealand were proposing to bring over a team of players to oppose Northern Union teams next season. It was stated on behalf of the would-be promoters that the team would include many prominent players who were prevented from making the journey with the All Blacks and that the side would even include some of those redoubtable men. Uh, for those who don't know, redoubtable means formidable opponents. Mm-hmm. This is when I think rugby union officials start to go, ooh, ooh, should we... They're at, they're at a crossroads here. Do we do we stay do we stay the course, mm-hmm. or do we change the way we do things and nip this in the bud really fast? And one means they've got to take a fight head on, which they've never had to bother really doing before because they've never had any competition. And the other means going back on what it means to be amateur and something that they've stuck steadfastly to quite a bit so far already. Neither of them are positions that they want to be in. Yeah, and like the the interesting thing about the amateur status is that it was for the players, it was never for the officials. The officials were professional officials. Yes. And they, like, that's the thing that I don't understand about their mindset um and and it's crazy to think that anybody would have earned money out of the game and then looked at a player and said oh no you're not you're not allowed to earn this money because you've got to be an amateur it it makes no sense to me nor did it to most of the players Mm. now may 4 1907 this is one month and one day after the rugby union had decided not to provide any accident cover. Sydney played South Sydney in a match at the SEG. It was at the end of this game when Alex Burden infamously broke his arm. With no insurance to cover him while he was injured and unable to work, Burden's feeling of anger towards the rugby union for twice failing to help him started to peak. Mm -hmm. Uh, Five days later, the referee reports, Mr. William Wilson Hill, Secretary of the New South Wales Rugby Union, is one of the ablest of present-day New South Wales forwards, but the laws as to professionalism in rugby football are so rigid that by accepting the appointment of Secretary to the Union, he becomes debarred from playing. Though Mr. Hill is classed as professional by the rules, he is morally an amateur and much more entitled to the privileges of amateur footballers than those who will professionally coach teams. So uh, basically what's happened here is a current player has found a way to get paid by the rugby union while still playing, and that is he took on a role on the committee because mm-hmm. committee men have to be paid, apparently. Mm-hmm. So he works on the committee, he gets paid while still playing. But he's not being paid for playing, he's being paid for the secretary work. It, it's so a, what a crazy they're, situation. <laughs> they're, they're creating loopholes for themselves. So now yeah, they yeah. can have their cake and eat it too, as you said before. That's exactly, exactly what they're doing here. Exactly. That That is exactly what they're doing now. <laughs> it's about a week after this. 
that New Zealand Rugby Union player George Smith sends a telegram to Australian player Peter Moyer asking whether there was any prospects of organising enough players in Sydney to take on a professional New Zealand side. Moyer took this to an unofficial meeting at Victor Trapper's sports store, which is located at 108 Market Street, Sydney, if you ever want to go and try and find out what's there now. Probably nothing. Now, this was not the first time that these unofficial meetings had been taking place at Trapper's sports store. And usually at these meetings, there was James Giltonen, Labor politician Henry Hoyle, uh, Alex Burden was often there. And every now and then you'd have a few other players who would attend sporadically. Most notable were South Sydney player Arthur Hennessy, Balmain player Bob Graves, and Jim Moyer. At one of these meetings after they received this uh, telegram, it was decided that a combination would be put together to get the ball rolling of forming a professional rugby code. And now, now we start seeing movement in Australia towards professionalism. Yeah, and it seems like that meeting was when they went for it. Yep, they figured there's enough discontent in the air. We think we can get enough players to come across. At this stage, they're only thinking of getting 15, 20 players. Mm -hmm. That's all they need. And if they can make it a big enough spectacle, in, in their mind, I reckon this is what they're thinking. If we can make it a big enough spectacle and make sure it's well known, like we're completely honest that the players had been paid and how much they got paid for it and that they would be protected by insurance, all that sort of stuff, all the things that they've been asking for and being denied. If we make it known that that's what they're getting, we'll probably find there'll be a flood of players coming over and we'll be able to start our own competition. And you, you look at everybody that was at that meeting and the different aspects that they brought to the table. You know, you had Trumper that had his experience within cricket and, and, and you know, going on tours and things like that, managing men, things like that. You've got players there that have been injured and have had time off work with no compensation. You know, you've got the telegram that they're going through and there's this idea and they're already doing it in New Zealand. They're ready to come over. It's really interesting to have, to see how all of these different people from different backgrounds and things like that, they all come together at this meeting and they decide to go for it. And I mean, it must have been really exciting. In many ways, it must have been a bit scary because they would have known that the rugby union officials aren't just going to sit back and allow this to happen and everything's going to be fine. But they went for it anyway because they felt like it was the right thing to do. Yes, I think the addition of Henry Hoyle would have been a huge a huge get for the professional movement because I don't know I haven't mentioned him too much because he had no real involvement in any of this or anything mm -hmm. that impacted on this prior to these meetings. But he came through the union movement. And the union movement when he started there was all about trying to make sure that there was it was the I can't remember, it was called the eight hours movement. And what they were arguing was every worker should get eight hours of work, eight hours of recreation, and eight hours of rest every day. And that's what he was pushing for because that was not the case prior to that. Mm -hmm. They'd be working seven days a week, much, much longer hours. 
So he wanted to try and get a bit more balance into the lives for these men. Because in his mind, if they're better rested and they're happier away from work, they're going to work better when they're at work and they'll work and live longer. So you'll get more work out of them. In his mindset, you help them out and you're going to be helping them health-wise as well. So you're going to help the business out in the, in the long term. He was yeah, also a very, very good speaker publicly. Yeah. And it's interesting with a lot of these ideas that are coming up in this episode about, you know, work-life balance, which basically that is, and professionalism and being compensated for injuries and things like that. These were concepts that were being spread around the world at around the same time. And so these were ideas that were been spoken about in other parts of the world, obviously, and in other cities within Australia. But the thing you've got here are, are trigger points which put things in motion. And it, it takes it out of being the thought of like, yeah, that would be nice, but to, no, let's do this. Let's make this happen. Yes, and we're going to see now that the ball starts to get a bit of momentum here mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because now all the talk is directed at this professional organisation being put together over New Zealand. In May 20, it is understood that all arrangements will be completed next month for sending a team of professional rugby players to England. Two days later, in order to check the proposed information of a, prof- of a professional rugby team to visit England, the New Zealand Rugby Union will require each player to sign a statutory declaration that he has not broken his amateur status and does not contemplate doing so in order to be considered for selection. So selection is what's coming up over there at the time is a match between the North Island and South Island of New Zealand. And this is kind of like what the interstate games were like for Australia in rugby league, where every rep game led up to selection for the test squad. And they've got a tour coming up of Australia in mid-1907. So there's this rep game, North Island versus South Island. From that, they'll select a squad that will tour over to Australia for that tour. And now there's talk that there could be a bunch of profession, uh, a bunch of players that are in line to get picked for those two sides that have been approached to become professionals, and some of them have probably already said yes. They don't know if they have or not. Mm-hmm. So we're going to make them all sign stat decks. Now, this stat deck is very well worded in some ways, and in other ways it is terribly worded because you are it basically, to the person that is supposed to sign it, you are presumed guilty immediately <laughs> unless you sign this stat deck. That's right. And this now, you, so give the give the information that the stat deck had within it because it is it's outrageous in itself. This, this is the official wording of the stat deck. I name of city do solemnly and sincerely declare as follows. And there's two points. Point one, that I have never asked, received, or rolled on promise, direct or implied, to receive any money consideration, whatever, actual or prospective, for playing football or rendering any service to a football organisation. And two, this one's wordy, (laughs) 
and particularly that I have not asked, received, or relied on any promise, direct or implied, to receive any money consideration, whatever, actual or prospective, or to receive any benefit from, nor have I promised or asked to be permitted to take part in any manner whatsoever in a scheme having for its object the sending of a team of rugby footballers from New Zealand to play football against teams of the Northern Counties Rugby Union of England, and I make this solemn declaration conscientiously believing the same to be true under and by virtue of the provisions of an Act of the General Assembly of New Zealand entitled the Justices of the Peace Act 1882, dated at place, the date, 1907 before me, a justice of the peace for the colony of New Zealand. Now, there are two parts to this which I found fascinating. Number one, and I think it's fair enough, they're basically asking if you've been involved with any negotiations to become a professional player. Um, mm -hmm. But they're also asking if you've been approached. That's right, yes. And just think about that. Has somebody approached you? If if you can't sign that because you've been approached, you might not have any any thoughts of playing professional rugby. Exactly you might right. Think, you might think it's a silly idea and told the person to go away, but you can't sign that stat deck if that happened. Yeah, number point one is not entirely in your control. Mm, yeah, exactly. <laughs> point two is they kind of shoot themselves in the foot because they've narrowed it down to have you been approached or accepted an approach to represent New Zealand to play specifically in the Northern Counties Rugby Union of England? Not, mm. not Australia, not anywhere else, just in that specific part of the world. And the thing about this stat deck, which is important, is that if you sign it and you've lied on it, what are the consequences? Yes. So that that stack deck was revealed on May 27. Now, on that same day, the Rugby Union Organisation in New Zealand has expelled from the membership of any club a Mr Albert Baskerville, has decided to take steps to prevent him from entering any ground under the control of the rugby union on the ground that he committed an act of professionalism by attempting to promote a visit from England of a professional team. The upcoming North Island v South Island rugby union game will contain no players from Auckland as all 12 men from Auckland refused to sign that stat deck. They were joined by two players from Wellington, two from Otago and one from Canterbury. So five players from the South, mm -hmm. 12 men from Auckland. It's quite a whack. That is. And I mean, you you couldn't sign that stat deck if you were anywhere within the vicinity of any professionalism that was being talked about. You just couldn't. No. So four days later, it's revealed that the 12 Auckland players who refused to sign the stat deck, confirming their amateur status, have somehow been uh, coerced into signing the stat declaration. We don't know if they were coerced or forced or threatened. Mm -hmm. That's never revealed. Mm -hmm. But to go from being steadfastly opposed to it to signing it four days later mm -hmm. sounds suspicious to me. Yeah, yeah, it <laughs> sounds weird because it's so open-ended. Yes. Know? 
and, and it's it's there's so many ways you could interpret it. Now we'll see later on too that the the stat deck thing it becomes an idea for the New South Wales Rugby Union as well. June 1, 1907. So we've just gone another day. The English Northern Union has completed arrangements to play 27 games against the New Zealand professional team, which it is understood will tour in the north of England during the upcoming season. The Northern Union has banked £3,000 as a guarantee towards the visitors' expenses. Wow, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Yeah. But that also shows it's, it's kind of, I don't think it's intended to, but I think it's kind of a bit of a flex. You know, we've only yeah. been around for 12 years. We've already got three grand that we can just pop in the bank and still have plenty of money left over to run our competitions. And it, the other thing I think it does is it's it's transparency. Yeah, no. That will, it, that's, that's a huge thing too in all of this. Yeah, in that, you know, you're, you're not going to come on tour and we work it out at the end. Here's the money. Yes. Now, four days later, it's reported in the media who the men or who most of the men were who refused to declare their amateur status to the New Zealand Rugby Union. And they only provided the surnames. So they went with Smith, Tyler, Cunningham, Gillette, Nicholson, Sealing, Francis, Casey, Johnson, Booth, McDonald, Abbott, Cross, Wright and Byrne. It is also revealed that the professional players stand to earn two hundred pounds after all expenses were paid. Wow, that's a that's a good amount of money. It's basically a year's wage. Yeah. Six days later, June seven, representatives of the New South Wales Country Union and the Queensland Rugby Union were asked by journalists for separate news uh, from separate newspapers on their views of professional rugby, and both bodies were adamant in their opposition to professionalism, and that so too were all of their players, or so they believed. So now the media, and it's worth pointing out, the media is at this stage not in favour of professionalism. Mm -hmm. Some of them are a lot more clear about it. So the Daily Telegraph was one that was pretty clear that professionalism was not on. The Sydney Morning Herald was, as it was with everything, was very matter of fact. It didn't really get into bias opinion or anything like that. Mm -hmm. If there was going to be any, it'd be something that they asked to someone or something that someone told them. And, you know, someone comes and says, I have this to say. And they put it down as a letter to the editor sort of thing. Yeah. That's basically it. Uh, So now we're starting to get the media asking around, what are your thoughts on professional? What are your thoughts on it? And it seems to be that they're they're going to the people who they know are going to give them the answer that they want. Mm -hmm. It's very targeted. There'll be a few more coming up as well. The following day, June 8, the first interstate clash of the rugby union season took place at the SCG in front of 30,000 fans. Queensland won 11-6, but it was a graphic injury to New South Wales captain Harold Judd that this contest is remembered for. He got his leg entangled with that of his teammate, Bede Smith, and it broke just below the knee. Man. In the front of the shin. The referee reported the snap was plainly heard by everyone in the vicinity. The evening news stated there was a distinct click which seemed to echo across the ground. That's terrible. That's graphic. Yeah. Um, He was taken directly to St Vincent's Hospital. Two days later, the New South Wales Rugby Union Secretary, William Hill, visited Judd at the hospital. 
Now, it's around this time, and I haven't been able to find a date, but it is around mid-June that the MIU has a meeting and they decide to buy Harold Park from James Joint and Smith. And they agree to start covering medical expenses for injured players, starting with Judd, but not going back any further than that. So Alex Burden, again, misses out. So Burden's, uh, Judd is sitting in hospital and he's got his medical expenses paid for. And there was possibly even some chatter at the time about whether they would compensate some of his wages because at this stage, they would have known how long it takes for a player to recover from a broken leg. They dealt with two of them just a year before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, June 12, two days later, the New Zealand professional side confirmed that they have a squad of players ready to sail to England with the ship leaving Australia at the end of July, just a month and a half away. The squad, yep. though, could not be named due to the stat declarations that they'd been made to sign. Now, one of the things to think about right now is that these players from New Zealand have got a guarantee for their living expenses of £3,000 up front. Yeah, all their, and, all their costs are paid for when they're yeah. over there. Now, the thing to remember is the crowds they're going to play in front of are not any bigger than the crowds that they're playing in front of. So they know that the rugby union has this type of money. But the rugby fo- the Northern Football Union in England, which is what we call the Rugby Football League today, they have this money and they're giving it to the players. They're sharing it. They're not just keeping it for themselves. And that's something to remember because it's it's kind of amazing to think that the rugby the rugby union authorities were just keeping this money. And here you've got the basically the rugby football league, and I'll say that so it doesn't confuse things. The rugby football league is showing that the money is there and you can pay the players and still have the money available to run everything. There's no reason to not pay the players. Yeah. And hell, there's probably plenty of money left over to, you know, give officials some decent pay as well. Yeah, yeah. The officials wouldn't have been going without. That's for certain. Exactly right. Now, it was also around this time that one player revealed why one of the New Zealand players, why he initially refused to sign the stat deck. And this is this was his answer, quoted. For instance, I, like others, pay my subscription to a club to play football with the other members. I also pay a shilling a week to go out to the grounds. And why should I have to sign a declaration? I've been an amateur footballer for the past 14 or so years, and my status has never been questioned. Why should it be questioned now? How could anyone who played for the love of the game be asked to go before a justice of the peace and sign something binding him over to a certain body, the penalty being that if at any time he broke it, he would be liable to imprisonment? It's just the principle of the thing that I'm fighting for. I wouldn't sign a declaration for either side, union or the professionals. And, and I mean, that's, that's everything. That is everything. And you can see it just adds more discontent. Yeah. You know, even for, for a, a player like him, who isn't committed either way. He's just not going to sign something like that with the, as he said, the the possibility of jail time for a document that could be interpreted a lot of different ways. Exactly right. Like, can you imagine going to jail because it turned out somebody come up to you and offered you a place in the professional team 
which you dismissed them completely and told them to go away and you still end up in jail over it. <laughs> That's right. Um, now, a counter-argument was made by one New South Wales rugby union official, which simply, he simply stated, if the union did not stand firm, the young players would eventually be corrupted by professionalism. <laughs> this is some of the language that we start to hear mm-hmm. a little bit over the next coming months. Mm-hmm. And it's, let's be honest, it's not helping. No, and it's very emotive language. Yes. It's, uh, it's very well, strong. Trying, trying to shame very, the players. Yeah, and I tell you what, it's very self-righteous for the rugby union administrators who are getting paid. Yes. <laughs> now, June 16, the Truth newspaper in Brisbane reports, present appearances indicate that the professional rugby scheme has fizzled right out. Baskerville, who's credited with being the arch conspirator, has attained a very fair measure of notoriety throughout the colony at the expense of being put up for concocting such a vile project and attempting to besmirch the fair fame of New Zealand rugby. That's another newspaper that was not exactly for professionalism, as you might have, you might have got that impression. Yeah, and it's it's very interesting the language changed, isn't it? It is. Now, there's a reason why they've come to this conclusion, mm-hmm. and that's because Baskerville, much like anyone else involved in the professionalism movement, has not said anything to anyone in the media. Oh wow! So they are left to guess. And what we're seeing here, you'll hear about all here, is a lot of speculation. Mm-hmm. And that speculation being run by the media and reactions by rugby union officials that they keep talking to drives up this animosity and anxiety within rugby union that something big's happening, mm-hmm. but there's no facts to prove it. They're jumping at shadows at this stage. And I guess the other thing it would have been doing also indirectly and probably not the consequence they expected. It's driving interest in what's actually happening exactly. in terms of like, what is this thing? I want to exactly. know more about this. You know, it all seems something's going on. Tell me about it, you know? Yeah. And as every time the rugby union responds in an aggressive manner, more and more players go, yeah, you know, I, I think I might give it a look. Yeah. And that, look, there would have been, there would have been players that would have, been reading the quotes from the officials and knowing that they were well paid and that they had seen them once again we go back to that train ride you know people the type of people that were having oysters and drinking whiskey and here they are coming out in the paper and really going after players integrity and and other people's integrity based upon earning money out of the sport while they were earning money out of the sport Yes. Now we get to the rugby union being a bit reactive because on June 23, it's reported that the MRU has established an insurance fund. This will provide payment of medical fees up to 10 guineas and assures a gratuity of one pound per week for a maximum of 21 weeks to injured players. It's it's not big, Mm. but it's much better than what they had in place, which was zero. And it shows that they know they've got to do something. Yes, they're now starting to put their money where their mouth is a little bit and go, you know what, maybe we do need to start spending a bit of coin on players who are injured, not giving them a wage, players who are injured, in order to stop this professional movement because it sounds like it's gaining momentum. 
Uh, three days later, it's reported that the New Zealand professional side will set sail for England as soon as the New Zealand Rugby Union side returns from their tour of Australia, as it is reported that a number of the current squad will be selected for the professional tour. It's also been announced that the New Zealand side may very well consider including a number of Australian players to bolster their back line. Interestingly, the success of the South African Rugby Union Tour of Great Britain has been followed by a proposal that a South African professional team should also visit England. And that was just that. There's been no other follow-up to that anywhere. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, the following day, the New Zealand Rugby Union star George Smith has been announced as the captain of the professional side, but not by anyone running the professional side. So who who announced that? Was that just in the... It was just an article in the newspaper that basically said just that. That's interesting. The following day, June 28th, New South Wales Rugby Union officials were asked what they thought about the prospects of professionalism spreading through New South Wales. And we've got a few quotes here, and these are good, mm-hmm. especially with the uh, the beauty of hindsight. Mr. Green was asked what would happen if a player decided to become professional, and he said, let him go at once. We will be better off without him. William Hill, the New South Wales Rugby Union secretary, added, I cannot see anyone in local football who will be likely to join the party. Most of our players are in fairly good positions and play the game for the pure love of it. I do not see any chance whatever of the movement getting a hold in this state, and I have no anxiety on that score. That's the interesting thing about that quote is that at this time, professional the what professional rugby or what we call rugby league, it was the exact same sport on the field. Like yes. The, it wasn't like the rules were different. or It was the exact same sport. Yeah, there was no. It was going to be just rugby union, but players would be better looked after financially yeah. um, if they were injured. Yeah. Um, Mr. Howe, secretary of the MRU, said, "This sounds good. Knowing the players as I do, <laughs> it's already a bad start for you. <laughs> I don't think there is the least chance of any of our players taking the trip on. At most, it gets better." What is there in it for a player? He'll probably make £200 for six months' works. With its attendant risk, for the bulk of the money will go to the promoters of the trip. And considering all this, I don't for one minute minute think that any of them will be so foolish as to risk their amateur status for what, after all, is no compensation. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Let's unpack that, shall we? (laughs) First of all, the idea that he was going to get six months' pay it's a really good selling point for the rugby league, right? Yeah. That's the first thing. The second thing is to say that the promoter will get most of the money anyway. That is exactly what the rugby union was doing. <laughs> That's why they, they had to the promote and taking all of the money. Yes. The, the whole structure for rugby league tours was exactly the same as rugby union, except instead of the governing body holding all the money, the money would be dispersed to expenses and the players and the league would get a percentage at the end. Mm-hmm. And in the early days, the first two or three tours, I believe, were funded by private enterprises. So people who wanted to invest money in it because it was too much for the league. They didn't have the operating capital at the time. So a lot of the money they got from gate receipts paid the person first who funded the whole thing. And then the players got was you know, the share of what was left over. But all the expenses were paid along the way. So they didn't have to, there was no out-of-pocket expenses for the players. But can you imagine what the players at the time 
felt when they read that quote. Mm. 120 plus years later, it is absolutely outrageous. <laughs> At the time, these players must have been furious to read that sort of stuff, especially while they were all being attacked and their integrity was being attacked. And by the way, they're all still rugby union players. No one's played rugby league. No one's played professional rugby yet. No. You know? That's it, right. It's it's absolutely crazy. Oh, there's and two more quotes you, here. Okay, okay, go on, go on. Tell, tell me them. Uh, this is from an unknown board member of the New South Wales Rugby Union. It looks to me as if an attempt is being made to push some of the trouble that has been stirred up in New Zealand onto us. But the public may rest assured that if occasion arises, my union will take action quick and lively to deal with the men who encourage any such pr proposal of professionalism. And the other one is, I don't think even the old crocs who have been out of the game for some time would accept such an offer. Another thing I can't understand, the promoters of the professional team in New Zealand asking Sydney for backs, seeing that the only prominent three-quarter they have any knowledge of is Charlie Russell, and Russell would hardly have the offer on his mind. I don't think there is any hope of a man like this leaving home for any offer of this character. Wow. It's worth noting that Charlie Russell lined up for the Wallabies in their 1909 series against the Kangaroos, which then meant he became a professional. Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> it's also interesting to think about that when you consider that, and at spoiler alert, eventually the New Zealand professional team picks up probably one of the biggest sports stars in Australia at that time, and yep. he's the one that joins them. Yep. And not, um, a, not even the New South Wales Rugby Union are looking at, at him either. Yeah, that's that's unbelievable. Now, we also get the first quote in the Australian media from Albert Baskerville on June 28. And he states that George Smith has not been offered the captaincy and also that he's not... <laughs> and also that he has no desire to select any Australian players for his professional side. So he doesn't know where those two rumours have come from, but he shuts yeah. both of them down. And this yeah. is also a common thing you'll find is every now and then one of the professional administrators like Baskerville and then the Australian ones later on, they spend occasional moments just shutting down rumours, whether they're being honest or not. They just shut them down blankly. And they don't offer any great feedback other than, no, no, that's not true. Yeah. And the other interesting thing is that you would think to make professionalism happen I mean, if it happened these days, and we've seen it in different sports, and we've even seen it in rugby league at, at times, you would normally see the new administrators come out and make a lot of noise, make a lot of promises, and be on the front foot. And that's not happening here. And, no, I, and no. I think that probably shows that it was because it was more of a grassroots thing that it, it grew out of. It wasn't somebody coming out and saying we're starting this new thing and come and join it and blah 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 it was a movement amongst the playing group and the clubs and they were talking about it amongst themselves um i i find that really interesting but that's exactly what it is it's a it's a player driven thing because at this stage albert baskerville is a young fella himself and he's currently a player at this time mm -hmm. and so a lot of this is i feel the people running the professional movements are protecting the players. That's why they're not naming anyone. Yeah. And they had to do that because if they mentioned anyone, 
that player would then be banned. Yes, and also they might risk losing that player. Yeah, yeah. Uh, July 6, final arrangements have been finalised for the New Zealand tour. The professional side is rumoured to contain 16 forwards and nine backs, hence why they're asking for Australian backs. Mm-hmm. That's not factual either. The squad was a bit bigger than that. Two weeks later, on July 19, rumours suggest that the professional tour to England has been dropped amid suggestions that Australia would be keen to play professional games against New Zealand instead. It is understood that a professional rugby union destined to affiliate with the English Northern Union is being formed in Sydney. Again, none of that has been discussed yet. Mm-hmm. It's more jumping at shadows. July 21, two days later, a list of players rumoured to be certainties for the professional tour has been declared as not correct by Baskerville. Again, just shutting it down. August 1. And this is where things start to really pick up. It's been rumoured that the professional rugby team has accepted an invitation to play a game in Paris and another in California. 160 applications were received for places in the New Zealand squad. Three matches are set to be played in Sydney and it is possible that games will also be played in Melbourne and Adelaide. Wow. Again, nothing's been revealed anywhere. Mm -hmm. This just turns up. I guess the interesting thing about it, though, once again, is that a player reading this and knowing how much money was offered for the playing, uh, for the expenses for the the New Zealand professional team, and then they start thinking about, well, how much more money would they be making if they also come to Australia? And they played in Sydney, and they played in Melbourne, and they played in Adelaide, and then they played in California. And once again, indirectly, it sounds really exciting and like there is a lot of money to be made. Absolutely. And you're getting paid to do all of this touring around and you're playing footy. Yeah, I guess that's another thing that is very easy to forget is that how, you know, we, we think these days about travel, you jump on a plane and you're basically anywhere in the world in 24 hours. Back then they had to go by boat Mm. and it was a world adventure. You know that they you, these are places that you could read about for the most part. You might see a couple of pictures of if you're lucky, but these are far off exotic places that they're starting to talk about playing now. And and these it's an adventure to be had, and you get paid to do it. It Six, sounds really exciting. Typically and, around eight weeks by boat, one way. That's crazy. That's so crazy. Yeah. And I guess the other thing to think is of all of the places that they stop along the way that you get to see as well. Yeah, that's right. Because uh, I think that one went via Sri Lanka mm-hmm. and went through, you know, below the you know, European parts of Greece and stuff like that. Italy would have went that way. Mm-hmm. Um, August 2. The following day, it's revealed that James Gilton and his organising games to be played in Sydney later in the month against the New Zealand professionals. Two days later, a widely circulated rumour suggests that Daly Messenger, the brilliant New South Wales three-quarter, had been invited and had accepted an invitation to join the professional rugby team, which is about to leave New Zealand for England. Messenger was interviewed about the rumour, to which he replied, and this is his quote, there is nothing in it as far as I'm concerned. I have no, I've had no communication with or from the organisations of the team. 
the rumor that I've joined the team is untrue and you may contradict it flatly. <laughs> I wonder if he had joined it at that stage. I don't think so. Yeah. It's Look, it's possible, but given that the New Zealand Rugby Union would have been focused solely on organizing games in Sydney, mm-hmm. I think at that stage they would have just been looking to get the games up and running. And if they needed extra players, they'd, they'd discuss that after watching the three games to see who would be, you know, good to take with them. Mm-hmm. It should have been a shot across the bow to have, oh, yeah. to have a star-like messenger. And, like, if you haven't read about Daly Messenger, he was a he was a proper superstar. Um, to have a player like him linked to it, 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 that should have been the shot across the bow where the rugby union officials decided to do something real. Yeah, Messenger went on to claim that, to his knowledge, none of the other members of the New South Wales side have been approached to join the professionals. Furthermore, there was also no knowledge as to whether any of the current New Zealand players, let alone who, had been selected in the professional squad. He is shutting everything down hard. Mm. Mm, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And as I said, it's it's kind of the opposite of what you'd see today. Yes. You'd want to be, today, you want to be remote and everything and try and talk it up as much as possible to try and generate interest, and they're doing the exact opposite here and generating interest probably even more rapidly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the following day, August 5, the Sydney Morning Herald reports, New South Welshmen have been led to believe that if they play against the professionals and show good enough form, they will have a chance of inclusion in the 25 who will visit England which kind of supports what I was saying about Messenger's comment. Mm-hmm. And also, on the strength of remarks dropped by officials in high authority, there is a feeling amongst a number of our players strongly in favour of professionalism and is only necessary for some guiding spirit to take up the matter for quite a large number of our present players to follow the lead. Mr. J. Gilton is, it is understood, taking an active part in making the arrangements for the matches. And if rumours speak truly, some success has been met with in regard to one or two captains at first grade teams. Mr. E. Wiley, who will be the manager of the professional New Zealand team, denies that Johnson and Sealing are members of the selection committee of the professional side, as was rumoured recently. And there's more. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of news on this day. Mr. Patton, secretary of the Eastern Suburbs Rugby Union Club, said he was afraid that there was, at present, among the players, a strong undercurrent of feeling in favour of professionalism. He's the first club boss to come out and say such a thing. Yeah. August 6th, the New South Wales Rugby Union are reportedly contemplating having their players all sign a declaration stating that they will not play against the professional New Zealand side, not too dissimilar to the declaration that the New Zealand Rugby Union had his players sign. One club official stated that his side would go over as a whole and play in the professional code if the movement were placed on a firm basis, and I'm guessing that was someone from Balmain. You can almost, through time, feel the players and their reaction to being to hearing that they might have to sign a declaration like they were given in New Zealand. Um, Talk about not reading the room. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, James Gilton is finally quoted in the Sydney Morning Herald, and he said, you can take it for certain that next year we'll see six teams playing under the Rugby League of New South Wales. That's the first time Rugby League is mentioned in Australia. That's that's amazing. Oh, what a cool quote that is. And he only said six teams. 
Turned out he got nine. Yeah. You know what it shows, though? It shows that while all of this speculation's going on and there's a lot of focus on this New Zealand team, he w- Giltman was going around and putting things in place and 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 doing it while the, everyone was focused elsewhere. And all of a sudden he comes out and he says, we've got six teams and it's going to yeah. happen next year. And, and that, that must have been it. I don't know if it was a shock to the rugby union administrators at the time because they must have known by – I mean, if they didn't know by now, they were stupid. But for him to come out and say that we are going ahead with a six-team comp, and as you say, he only says six teams, I mean, that is a gigantic leap forward all of a sudden. Yes. Yeah, there's two big quotes on this same day in response to that. Mm-hmm. Well, one's in response to it, and that's from Mr. Wood, president of the MRU. He stated that if clubs were not satisfied with the administration of affairs, they had the remedy in their own hands. Each club elected three delegates to the union, one of whom also acted on the committee. The latter elected the various officers, including the secretary and treasurer, so that the administration of the funds rested with them. He went on to say that professional men rugby, its influence is baneful and pernicious. <laughs> pernicious. Um <laughs> If so that was instead the, of instead of sitting there and trying to soften the blow and try and do something to talk about, you know, what we're going to do to try and get the clubs back, he's gone. What are you running away for? This is a situation that you created, and he's it is basically blaming them. Yeah, he put it back on them. He yeah. put it back on them. Look, it's it's not the it's not the silliest move in the world, but at the same time, I'm I'm almost certain that if a player asks the clubs. Well, why is this the case then? The clubs must have been the clubs must have had a really good answer to why they can't just use their influence and make it all professional immediately. Yes, and now remember, Mr. Lewis Abrams from the very start. Mm-hmm. He's a delegate of the Glebe Rugby Union Club, and he stated, "I think by next year there will be seven or eight professional clubs in Sydney." I see no difference in playing football for payment as to playing cricket for money. That didn't go down well. Yeah. But those comments are really interesting because it's Gilton that's putting it together. Yes. And with the meetings are happening at his, his shop. And that, I love that because it ties so many things together. That's right. Now the next bit's a bit wordy. It's, on August 7, the Sydney Morning Herald, um, they labelled the new professional New Zealand side as the All Golds, and I, I believe that's the first time that, that happened in Australia. Mm-hmm. The article then asks, and this is the wordy bit, what has brought about all this trouble in the midst of a rugby boom? In nearly every case, the fingers of those who answer point to the rugby union and what is termed its greed. Several first grade players yesterday spoke bitterly of the desire on the part of the union officials to have a big bank balance without taking into consideration the fact that the players provide the sport and they should be encouraged. These players are connected with various clubs and the spirit of rivalry for local distinction and supremacy has been the keynote of their energy and enthusiasm. There's friendly rivalry on all sides, but the union, it is claimed, has killed that rivalry by dragging the leading clubs out of their own districts every Saturday and Sunday in order to provide more gate money by taking them to the, the bigger ground at the SCG. That is going to become very, very important very quickly. Correct. 
It says here, the SCG was obtained by the rugby union for 12.5% of the day's takings, while on such grounds as the university oval, oval, they would have to pay 33%. So it was even cheaper for them to play there, and they got more people in there, so they made even bigger profits there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Throughout this season, the university club has provided the sport Saturday after Saturday at the SCG to help swell the funds of the union, while at the same time an inferior match was being played at their home ground which should not draw an audience sufficient to do little more than pay working expenses. The university men, who are as true and loyal amateur sports as are to be found anywhere, and I will note they were in rugby league when they came across, they didn't get paid. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Nope. Wow. Naturally have a warm interest in the welfare of the University Oval, and seeing that they have been this season well up in the competition, they would naturally have preferred their ground should have received a share of the earnings brought about their good play. Instead... They have provided football for the benefit of the rugby union and the trustees of the SCG and at the same time compelled thousands of supporters resident in the western suburbs to travel right across the metropolis to witness their own players playing games. So even the most dyed-in-the-wool amateur players, even they're blowing up about it now. Yes, because they they need the money that comes in from gates, you know, from the gate takings to maintain their ground and upgrade it and all that sort of stuff. But mm-hmm. because they're not playing games there, they're not getting the money to do any work on the ground. Yeah. So the games that are at the ground are between two teams that don't even represent the area. It just shows that, it's. I mean, so many levels of discontent. Yeah, this like is a big one. Yeah, like you, you're getting uh, – you can – it's really easy to see the side of it of we're – we're playing in front of these huge crowds and not getting paid for it. And the, you know, the rugby union is keeping the money, but when you've got the amateur, the like committed to amateurism players and teams saying uh, along similar lines, and it's just to upgrade their stadium and, and, you know, keep it in working order. It just shows how it just shows how deep the discontent was about so many things, and it makes you wonder why the rugby union authorities they just didn't budge on anything. No, and now we'll see why. Because instead of spending thirteen thousand pounds on the purchase of Lily Bridge grounds, which was owned at the time by Sir James Joynton Smith, the rugby union should have voted year by year a sum of a sum of money that would go to every club to maintain their venues. This is the feeling that players and administrators had of clubs. Mm-hmm. The rugby union, though, in their mind, thought, if we own our own venue and make that our marquee venue, we don't have to pay a fee to anyone and we'll get all the profits. Oh, man. And so what did they do? They bought the Lily Bridge ground from Sir James Joynton Smith for £13,000. Which we talked about how much it was for £3,000. Yes. This is £13,000. Let's get my calculator back out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is, an, yeah, this is, this is pretty big. This is a gigantic, this is a gigantic moment that, they might, the rugby union authorities probably, well, they did not realise. It's about $2 million now. Okay. Now, who did they buy this ground off again? Sir James Joynton Smith. 
Now, people need to remember that name. Yes. Um, played a huge role in the survival of rugby league in 1909. If you want to know more about that, check out the 1909 episode. Um, it's He's very important and very rich. And it probably helps that he got £13,000 handed to him too. Yeah, he has at least £13,000. <laughs> and the rugby union authorities bought that ground off him and gave him, and they didn't give him the money, they purchased it. But it is interesting to see where that money ends up. That's right. So, yeah, a lot of clubs and players thought that the money that they spent there should have gone to the venues to improve, to improve seating accommodation at venues like Rushcutter Bay Oval, Wentworth Park, Erskineville Oval and North Sydney Oval. In addition to the Estadine Sydney Sports Ground, they could have done a bit of upgrades there as well. Had it been done, there would, have, there would not have been um, the spirit or the cry for professionalism that we currently have. Now, it goes even more into this thing. It's not too much more. Last year, the players had to pay their own expenses to travel into the country. And until late this year, if a player was hurt, he had to do the best he could for himself. Now the clubs going to the country have actual expenses paid. And by arrangement with an insurance company, players insured are also assisted while they are incapacitated from work. It is claimed, however, that it was very hard work to get even these concessions as the sole aim of the rugby union has been to hoard up money. Mm-hmm. The Sydney Mail showed one of the early signs of the media showing a more open mind to professionalism. Because as, as we saw before, very aggressive language against professionalism. Yeah. And here's one article quoted, and it's very brief. To say the introduction of the money element will kill it is to say that we have no men capable of controlling it. Professionalism has not killed cricket nor golf. On the contrary, it has raised the standard of each of the games. The matter is well worth serious consideration. It is stated that by next season there will be eight clubs of professional players. Clearly, there is to be a great upheaval between now and, well, the end of the week in football circles. I can see where it seemed unlikely from a rugby union official's point of view because they probably thought so much had to be done in such a little space of time that it was almost impossible. But I think they obviously underestimated Gilton and and everybody else that was involved in setting it up because they were streets ahead. And how organised they were. They were they were so organised <clears throat> on so many different levels that would even stand up today. You know, oh, it, yeah, yeah. the work that they were doing to, um, uh, like they were, they were absolutely incredible, incredible men with what they did. And the, uh, I think the, the best way to measure how good they were at what they did, mm-hmm. because you consider the time frame that they did this in and compare it to the Super League War mm-hmm. because, in my mind, both very, very similar. Yeah, yeah. You're breaking away from what's been there and has had no competition for ages, which is the New South Wales Rugby League, and you're going to pull that apart and create your own competition. These guys did it in less than a year. They did it in just over seven months. Yeah. How long did the Super League War go for? Well, I mean, when we did our Super League War episodes, I mean, the the discontent started in the late 80s, early 90s. And, I mean, you could maybe even push it back to the early 80s if you want to see where the seed of the discontent grew. And then, I mean, the the breakaway was really 
started to get a bit of it started to get momentum in 94 but the super league competition didn't kick off until 97 so like there's there's that amount of time you could put it in very easily and it lasted one year one year that was it and these guys set up this competition that has not stopped yeah and so that's the way you got to look at this and they the other thing is they put in place standards of professionalism it wasn't just about oh you're going to get paid more money like they they put in place all sorts of different things behind that as well mm-hmm. that i don't think many people realize that's right and, and to do it all so quickly is incredible and when you line that up against the rugby union competitions who must have had way more money at the time i mean their expenses like it was prof- it was professional sport except for the players because everyone else was being paid and they would have had the money and it's really incredible to see that they even go as far as to buy a new ground so they can make even more of a profit off of the players while the players are saying to them we want more compensation for our time and our effort and the fact that we can miss working days actual work days through injuries and that's and the thing just, that's key here is that not once as a player said we want to get paid a full-time wage for this yeah it, it that wasn't their goal no it's all about risk reduction that's all they yeah. wanted yeah but the very important part of that last quote and that was on august 7 was there is to clearly there is to be a great upheaval between now and the end of the week in football circles mm-hmm. and whoever wrote that Nailed it. <laughs> the following day, the New South Wales Rugby Union had a meeting and released the following statement. The council is satisfied that no suspicion of professionalism attaches to the members of the New South Wales team or the New South Wales members of the Australian team. The special committee had been appointed by the rugby union to inquire into rumours freely circulating in the city during the past fortnight as to professional movement among footballers to put up a team against the visiting professionals. One long-standing and prominent rugby union official stated, The real footballers of the state, those who were not possessed of this sudden greed for gold, had nothing to fear for the game. They played for the love of it. This professionalism speculation will have a cleansing effect. All the ragtags and parasites of the game will be eliminated. He went on to say that those players who opt to become professionals would be relegated to their proper sphere, where they could squabble and fight amongst themselves for the few paltry shillings they would get. The atmosphere would be cleared and rendered purer by their removal. That's unbelievable. <laughs> I, you, get, you can feel the reaction of the players all these years later, can't you? You're going to call us parasites just because we want to be looked after when we got injured? While, while the administrators are being paid. It is outrageous. That is a graphic quote. What a but greedy, greedy quote, hey? We are in a situation where they, as I said, they're at the crossroads and they've already started to move down the crossroad of let's do something to look after the players to stop this movement. Yeah. They brought the insurance back in, the medical fund. You go, right, maybe they've decided, you know what, we've got to take it head on and help the players out and that'll squash everything. And they've just, right here, they're gone. Now, right-hand turn, let's go on the attack. <clears throat> Your parasites. And, and- <laughs> 
<laughs> unbelievable. And this is something that I don't think many people have probably talked about in this story ever. Mm. If the rugby union authorities had just decided to give a little, and, and they've give, given a little so far, as you say, but if they they looked at the writing on the wall and realised that they're looking at progress here and other sports have already done this and it's worked and now it's starting to go into the rugby as well. And we know in hindsight, and that's one thing that we need to remember, is we know the outcome. These people didn't at the time. But it seems really obvious where this is all going. And if they had have just put in place something, it, just the smallest thing, rugby league probably doesn't happen. No. And if and, it did, it would have been like the way it began in Queensland, and that was it'd be all strictly amateur, just playing a different kind of football. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, the the thing that also gets me is that they had the money to do anything they wanted in that regard. Yeah. And they chose not to. Now, the Daily Telegraph went and asked a bishop from Newcastle on his thoughts of professionalism in sport. And I know this seems a bit weird, but this also took place in England in the lead up to the schism that led to the formation of rugby or professional rugby union up there. Hmm. That religious leaders would be asked for their opinion and they would weigh in and they all they all were opposed to professionalism. And he said, it seems to me that professionalism spoils every game it touches. It's a deplorable thing. And, and once again, they're attacking the integrity of, of anybody that's trying to look towards playing in these professional competitions. Well, yeah, I, I don't want to be too going down the line of attacking religions, but to, yeah. be, to be attacking sports for taking money while they ask people to donate money to them every time they go to church seems hypocritical. They might be using the money for good good causes, but you can't say that the rugby league movement wasn't doing the same thing. It's for a good cause. It's to look after players when they're injured, not letting them get broke, and then they can't look after their family. It's to make sure everyone is looked after. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's interesting. But the the last... I guess year of this story is you can see the attacks on the morality of becoming a professional are increasing now. Yes. And the the thing that I don't understand about it is that the administrators were professional. As I said, everyone was a professional except for the players. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. From the Daily Telegraph, they quoted Information has been received that certain Auckland members of the team now representing the New Zealand Rugby Union side in Australia, who were reported initially to have signed, uh, signified their intention of joining the professionals, have now notified that they are returning to New Zealand and remaining amateurs. The article went to conclude that it seems that the organisation will be a very second-rate affair. Mm, that was based on rumours and not on fact. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know what's coming out in the last few months of, of this is the media campaign. Yes. It, it must have been 
one of the early media campaigns against something, mustn't it? It's pretty close to it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Also on August 8th, a meeting of players and others interested in the professional movement was held at the Batemans Crystal Hotel. The chair was occupied by Mr. Hoyle. There were about 50 members present, including a number of first grade players. No fewer of them were, were captains, five of which. Eight senior clubs were represented, the remaining three being University, Manly and West. The Manly club couldn't attend as they were away on tour of the Northern Rivers. Before business was entered upon, all present players had to sign a document agreeing to play against the New Zealand professional side that was about to arrive in Sydney. It was resolved to form a body called the New South Wales Football League. Matters in connection with the project were discussed at length, the general term being that members were not to go in for out-and-out professionalism, but simply to make good out-of-pocket expenses. A selection committee was appointed consisting of three who were captains of first-grade clubs. It is stated on good authority that some leading players and supporters have received uh, have received invitations from their employers, uh, sorry, have received intimations from their employers that they must either forego their positions or professionalism. So people are having their bosses telling them you need to pick this job or be a professional because they're under the impression that they would earn a full-time income from playing football, which is not yeah. the case. Yeah. And you can understand why bosses would be thinking that going by the media reports. That's right too. And a lot of them would have been opposed to professionalism as well. Yeah, there would have been, yeah, there were, and there would be people that, you know, they they would have been, like we saw with the ARL versus Super League war, there would have been people that took sides, you know? Yes. Now, the question of grounds occupied some attention. There are three grounds mentioned as available for the league next season, Wentworth Park, Agricultural Ground, and Hampton Oval. Now, remember those first two retired with the Glebe club members, so Matthew Harris. Mm-hmm. So the Most of the men on the Glebe board look to be quite open to having a team in both codes. That's probably more what they're after, not so much switching codes completely because Sir Matthew Harris wants as many games as possible at those two venues where that he runs. Mm-hmm. So he's he'd be open to having a league team and a union team. That That's, that's my view of it because yeah. – those that's venues still make money, so that money is then used for upkeep and you know upgrades to the venues and stuff. So the more games, the more ticket money coming in, the more money goes into their coffers. Yeah. And then it was revealed that the organisers of the movement are Mr. James Giltonen and a prominent cricketer. <laughs> and they're protecting the prominent cricketer. That mm-hmm. happens a lot in here for the, the next few weeks. Mm-hmm. The following day, the Australian Star asked the New South Wales Attorney General, Mr. Charles Wade, his views on professionalism in rugby, to which he replied, and this is this is pretty funny. I've also got a response from uh, Tony Collins uh, about this gentleman as well. So okay. I'll add that at the end. Okay. Um, his quote was, I'm not one of those who entertain the idea that in order to develop skill in sport, payment must be made to the individual for his services. That, in my opinion, is the surest way to destroy skill in sport. I hold that it is not possible for a person who is in receipt of any payment for his services to play the game with a thoroughly sportsmanlike instinct. He went on to talk about his experience with professional football in England when he was there. He actually came from England and he played test football for uh, the English Rugby Union team. Mm-hmm. Only th- like three tests or something like that, I think it was. But he set up the professional game. It was a common thing for a visiting team, which happened to win, to be pelted with blue metal, little rocks, 
and a referee had on at least one occasion to draw a revolver in self-defense so violent was the onslaught. <laughs> now, the reason why I spoke to Tony Collins, he's not just a professor of rugby league history. Obviously, in order to follow rugby league history, as you're seeing here, you need to follow some aspects of what goes on with rugby union. And in England, you've also got to follow what goes on in soccer, mm -hmm. football. So he's across the history of all the football codes there. And so I asked him, have you ever come across any instance where a referee had to draw a revolver in self-defense? Because to me, it sounds absurd. And he replied, yes, this is completely absurd. I've never come across any press coverage about it. If it happened, it would have been a massive deal and reported on widely. Wade, Mr. Wade, was a compulsive liar about professional sport. He was the New Zealand Rugby Football Union rep on the Rugby Football Union Committee. He said that was the New Zealand Rugby Football Union were members of the RFU, but not on the international board. It was he who also told the press that Baskerville's team was nothing but phantoms just a few weeks before they arrived in the UK, which led some Northern Union journalists to call the team the phantoms. Wow. So that, I mean, they went to, they went to a guy that was probably one of the worst people to talk about it. Because they knew he'd give them the quote that they wanted. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. And uh, me, me and Andrew have talked about this episode a little bit last week and, um, uh, like, didn't have that information from Tony Collins yet. And it really puts a completely different perspective on what he said. That's incredible. Because when you, you and me, when you told me about a player, a, a referee having to pull out a revolver, and that's what we talked about. We are like... I feel like that would have been like a, a mythology within sport. You know, I remember that guy that had to pull a revolver oh, out yeah. to protect himself. I would have known about that. I've, yeah. I've read enough about history in England football that that would have been something to come up. Yeah. And never, because that not only does it imply that he had to draw a gun, but he had to have taken the gun on the field for the entire game while he was there. Yeah. <laughs> because you're not going to get a chance if you're defending yourself to just go, Hang on, chaps. I've just got to run into the locker room and grab my gun. I'll be back in a sec. You've got to be carrying it on you the whole game. Why would a referee be doing that? Yeah, and it's <laughs> like it's it's one of those stories where you tell a story and it gives you incredible imagery in your head of what you're being told. But then when you go through it step by step of like, as you say, so he, he always has a gun on his hip while he's refereeing. Like, yeah, it makes no sense. But um, it does make sense why that that man said those things when you hear about his background. That's absolutely incredible. And he became a prominent politician in New South Wales. Yeah, I can't believe that we used to have politicians that would tell fibs. That's, That's crazy, word, isn't it? Yeah, I'm glad things have changed. Uh, we've moved on from that now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, August 10. The MOU is understood that they will be disqualifying any professional players for life from the amateur rugby code. On the same day, Lou Delpuche was rumoured to be one of the players who had switched to professionalism, but he denied that claim and added, I would not play even if I were offered £1,000. It's worth noting that he lined up for East in round one, 1908. I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> yeah. You Lose. must have got a thousand and one pounds, hey. <laughs> I will add just as a side note that's not relevant here at all. Yeah. His granddaughter is Blanche, who married Bob Hawke. Oh, really? That's yes. interesting. There you go. Far out. 
Another Labor politician. Yeah, yeah. August 12, James Gilton states that the team to play against the All Golds will be selected this night. Further comments rated by Victor Trumper, whose identity, even at this stage, was still being kept secret, with him constantly being referred to as a prominent cricketer. Now, why were they doing that, Andrew? Is Do you know why, or, or I, do you have I, a feeling why? I don't know why. I'm going to assume that because Trumper was, let's be honest, at the time, he was loved like Donald Bradman was 30 years later. Yeah. He was that freak of nature cricketer that was just like one of these generational cricketers that just came along every now and then and just blew everyone's mind what they were able to do. And they were, no one was on their level. Mm-hmm. And because he was a, he was from Sydney as well, from the Eastern suburbs, they absolutely adored him. And any newspaper at the time knew that if they said anything negative or added any negative connotations to someone so beloved, mm-hmm. that would have the opposite effect that they were after. Okay. So Trump is like one of those guys who can't do any wrong. So if he's on the side of the professionals, then by mentioning with the professional code would give the professionals a, a lot of good publicity. So it's easier to just say not his name because they've been slandering rugby league as well, or professional football as well. So we're not going to tie him in with us being negative towards him. Plus, we're not going to use his name to promote the code. Yeah. Okay. So it's a it's a two-way street. They, they're trying to save their face and not promote rugby league as well. That's that's my view of it. Because I can't think of any other reason why they would not name him. But they'd name James Gilton, who was um, a pretty well-known businessman at the time. Yeah. Had no issue with him. And they put Henry Hoyle in there, a politician. Um, mind you, was from the Labor movement. But the newspapers weren't as aggressively biased one way or the other back then towards politics. They were kept it pretty down the middle. Mm-hmm. But things that were a moral issue, which professionalism was, they tended to get a little bit more animated over. It just it's it just seems like it's the one area they've tiptoed around. Yes, very much so. Yeah, and it it does make sense the way that you put it. You know, because, uh, like, they're starting to attack the morality of people that are involved in it. Um, That's right. So to to keep his name out of it completely, I just find it very interesting. Oh, absolutely. So this prominent cricketer, Trumper, stated that the movement was not started for the purpose of bringing about professionalism in rugby, but in order to see that the first-class players were treated as they should be, he added, and I quote, in fact, they'll be on the same basis as the cricketers who figure in first-class engagements, which, of course, he knows. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these structures that were brought in for that professionalism aspect of rugby were very, very close to being identical to what cricket had at the time, of which he was currently playing. Yeah, and, and that's where we go back to that meeting that happened at, at Gilton and Shop, where you've got all of these different people that bring different aspects and different backgrounds and have different experiences of bits of this journey. And they come together in one place and they, they, what they put together was absolutely incredible. Yes. Now the MOU officials ascertain 
that within a month of the New Zealand professional setting sail for England from Australia, that the movement in Australia will be, and I quote, absolutely dead, and that the rebel players will come crawling back to the amateur game only to find that they've been banned for life. Now we're just issuing threats. True, and uh, that the you know the 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 other thing is that by by reiterating the life ban, they basically are saying you better make this work. <laughs> like there's no out, there's no fallback. No, players and officials and clubs eventually are only going to jump if everything is in place and this is definitely going to work because there is no alternative. And I think that that once again shows how well it was put together and, you know, how incredible a job they did to put the rugby league together. Yes. Now, it's also on August 12th that it was um, reported in the news that Alex Burden had handed in his resignation as a member of the Glebe Rugby Union Club. Oh, no, the Sydney Rugby Union Club, sorry. Mm-hmm. That's where he was playing. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Also on that day, the New South Wales Rugby Union and Metropolitan Rugby Union, in conjunction, released their rules pertaining to professionalism. Now, I did send you this. Mm-hmm. And just to let people know, in order for me to send this article to Freaky here, I had to take seven screenshots of it to stitch it all together. Um I'm not going to go through it because obviously it's very long, but the reason why it's important is because it shows to me absolute panic. Like they're not going to, they're not going to reveal it, but the fact that they've taken up two entire columns of a newspaper page to explain what professionalism is and what the penalties are for it is insanely excessive. It's panic. Yeah, and it didn't. It doesn't just boil down to what they've been saying all this time, which is basically, if you get paid to play the game, you're a professional, and then from there they go to your morality of being a professional, and you know all that that other silly stuff they carry on with. This is a very long document, and it is, it it really is. It's. It's it's interesting though because it shows where their mindset was at the time, and I mean, it, like the world they had created was falling apart. And once again, I go back to they had the money. They had the money to like it wasn't like they saw this happening and there was nothing they could have done about it. They had more money than this new rugby league competition that was about to begin. Because they'd had all of this money, not just from last year, but the year before and the year before and the year before and all the tours and all the test matches and all the exhibition games, they kept it. And yet this was their response. Their response wasn't a case of saying, let's do something proactive. Their response was to attack everyone and and threaten to ban everyone for life because they liked the cushy setup they'd had for themselves. Exactly right. All right. So the funny thing for me, uh, for me, out of this uh, big article they did on what is professional is point one is three words. 
as I said, the whole thing takes up two full columns of the newspaper. Point one says professionalism is illegal. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, everything else after that they didn't need. <laughs> it's excessive. Yeah. It's really excessive. But they've gone on and on and on and on and on. Um, point two has point one and point one has section A and section A has section AA, AB, AC, AD, then B, C, D, F, G, all the way through. And it goes to part two of it, all the way through, all the way through. It's not until you get to near the end. It's got law three. <laughs> it's just, it's insane. It goes to the point where it says, um, the Rugby Union Committee have delegated to the following recognised governing bodies, namely to the counties of Northumberland, Durham, Cumberland, Yorkshire, Lancashire, Cheshire, Middlesex, Kent, Surrey, Sussex, Hampshire, Gloucestershire, Somersetshire, Devonshire and Cornwall, to the universities of Oxford and Cambridge, to the Midland Counties, East Midland Unions and Eastern Counties Unions, the following powers to act for them, namely. And then they go through the whole thing all over again. I can imagine that a... Rugby player in Sydney would respectfully have said, I don't care what they think over there. <laughs> well, this is the thing, though, is that the at the time, the New South Wales Rugby Union ran Rugby Union Australia, mm -hmm. and they were basically a subcommittee of the English Rugby Union. Yeah. So when they brought in all these bands, and we'll get to it later on here, is if you got a ban and you wanted to challenge it, you had to go through the English Rugby Union to have it challenged. That's really interesting. So not only did they put, they give you the ban, they then wipe their hands off and say, oh, you're going to go talk to someone else now. Yeah, and I mean, your ban would apply everywhere. Yeah, that's right. I, I think one of the interesting things about this document is that when when they sat when they sat down and this was their reaction to professionalism, obviously really... You know, it, it's it's happening at this stage and they know it. They sit down, they write this document, as you say, in a panic. Um, it is a very lengthy document. Um, there's a lot of points to it. But yes. this document then becomes very important to rugby union in Australia. And... They stick by this document. It's a foundation document for them. It basically is, yeah. Yeah, and, and when you think of it that way, this document really hamstrung rugby union in Australia terribly. They never recovered, ever, even to this day. Even if you want to go to the highest of highs that they have had since the breakaway occurred, this document that must have been brought up over many decades, over the last century, maybe century plus of what it means to be a rugby union player, uh, a, a amateur rugby player, whatever you want to call it. This document was very important to that. And it was written in a panic and really set the professional and the amateur code in Australia on two different trajectories. And one of those trajectories was the lesser one. And we know what one that was. Yes. Now we get to the big, the big meeting. August 12. It's worth noting that uh, if I go back to what that quote was that I mentioned a while back, mm -hmm. where someone said, 
there, there will have to be an awful lot of changes going on in the world of rugby in the in, next in week. The next week. Now, what date was that? Just trying to find. It. I think it was. Uh, let's see. August seven. Okay. So we're five days after that. We're still within the week. <laughs> August 12. The second meeting at the Batemans Crystal Hotel of the the professional rugby movement. Here it is revealed what the agreement looked like that the professional players had to sign. Now, if you remember what the New Zealand Rugby Union players had to sign, there was a stat mm-hmm. deck. The league one is it's a little bit more simple. Mm-hmm. I name, hereby agree, if selected by the controllers, to play rugby football against the New Zealand professional team at Sydney in any or all of the three matches on August 17, 21, and 24 next, respectively. That was it. That's it. <laughs> we just want to know if you're available for selection. That's all it is. You know, you know, it's really coming out in all of this, Andrew, is the people that started rugby league in Australia were geniuses. Absolutely. They, they just did everything as perfectly as you could have imagined them needing to in the face of so much like hostility and, you know, the rugby union authorities refusing to budge and then making players sign stat decks. And there's all of this and they just kept it simple that they kept it simple for the player, but they showed them that everything was in place. They were absolutely genius with what they did. It's incredible. And completely honest and open about everything. The transparency the, was brilliant. That And that was the other thing too, the transparency. And it must have been a real breath of fresh air for the players that they talked to. Oh, absolutely. Now, also at this meeting, it's announced that the New South Wales Rugby League, Rugby Football League, had been formed officially. Now, had the... I can't remember when... Over in England, they changed from the Northern Football Union to the Rugby Football League. Can you remember what year that uh, was? I can't remember off the top of my head. Was it 1905? Yeah, I think it, it was earlier than that. It's. I, I wonder if they chose the name because of that name change from the Northern Union when they made it. It's it's possible. Mm. It's possible. Um, thing is, though, rugby, rugby League in Australia went with Rugby League from day one, whereas England chopped and changed between that and Northern Union for quite a while. Yeah. Uh, Henry Hoyle was announced as president, James Gilson as secretary, and for the first time in the media, Victor Trumper was named as being present, along with around 30 players, including Valley Messenger, Bob Graves, the Bowman captain, Arthur Hennessy, Harry Hamill, the Newtown captain, Jim Abercrombie, the North captain, and Alex Burden, the Sydney captain. Other players in attendance were Tommy O'Donnell, Martin Laidlaw, Costello, Turnbull, Slater, Percy McNamara, and Fred Hanlon. All up was revealed that some 100 players had thrown their lot in with the professionals. That didn't that's, take long. Yeah, that, that's a lot of players. So Gilton, Even today, that would be a lot of players. Oh, yeah. Gilton here, <clears throat> again with the transparency thing, he explained that all players wouldn't be professionals, professionals in the strictest sense. Rather, players would be financially covered for all their travel and loss of work wages, it was also suggested that footballers could be further assisted financially by having them manning gates or serve as line umpires, and they would get paid extra for those services in both of those instances. One of Gilton's ideas was to have former rugby players who were out of work hired to come and work as the gatekeepers, and they would be paid to do so. 
If the league became strong enough, they hoped to also establish pensions for players. All players would be fully insured and the league would not give an injured man one guinea well, sorry, the league would not insure would not give an insured man one guinea a week, but much closer to double that, which is what the rugby union was offering. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that come up in that was having former rugby union players um, be involved in the game in some capacity, because it basically showed that the rugby league were opening their arms to everyone, um, current players former players, former, because they were all former rugby union players. There were no rugby league players yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what that would have done would have had those people that did become part of the game, whether it be playing or around the game day experience, they're going back to the people they know and they're talking about their experiences and that they're earning money doing this. And it just opened up the game's arms to everyone. So that you didn't get players that would say, well, you know, I used to play, I used to play rugby and I can't imagine being part of this professionalism thing. Those people, they embrace those people as well. And that was probably really important to get goodwill in, in the Sydney sporting community. Absolutely. The other thing it did is it said, we will be making enough money to pay someone to do this. Mm-hmm. And we won't be keeping that money like Rugby Union does. Yeah. And the other thing is, too, we won't be just giving it to people going forward. We're willing to look at the people that have been before us. That's right. Um, and and when you look through everything that they wanted to set up for players at that time in the world, it's so forward thinking. It's incredible. And while Union is going around saying, we're going to ban you, we're going to cancel you, we're going to delete you, all this sort of stuff, Rugby League is not saying anything about getting rid of anyone. They're, as you said, opening their arms up and welcoming everyone in. It's completely it, positive versus completely negative. It was such a genius move. So yep. that that When you told me that the other day about them looking to employ former Rugby Union players, I, I just thought that was genius absolutely genius and it really showed that they thought of everything and you know this wasn't just some this wasn't just a movement that they sort of went along on its own momentum they really thought this out and that's why it it started and never stopped now also at this meeting trump added that he had written to england to arrange for a team to leave australia in 1908 and all players would gain a certain percentage of the gate-taking, so they weren't going over there playing for nothing. Mm-hmm. The matter was then raised by Bob Graves that he was threatened by his employer that if he continued pursuing professionalism, then they would sack him. Giltonen replied, and this is his quote, let him come to me and I'll give him one. <laughs> the whole, All the players gave him great applause and cheers for that. And that's why that man's name is on... The most beautiful trophy that's ever existed anywhere. (laughs) Hoyle also explained that any employer who acted upon their threats to sack players who aligned themselves with professionals, the league would supply the necessary funds to take that employer to court. And that's once again, they were on such a different level to how they were organising this. It like they were geniuses. It's, It's really impressive to hear it all. Hoyle also revealed that 
uh, Mr. J. Finlay had donated one pound and one shilling, which would be awarded to the as a prize to whoever scored the first try as a professional. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> Uh, then a squad of 20 men were named to play against the New Zealand side. They were Charlie Hadley, John O'Stunts, Daly Messenger, Ed Fry, Frank Cheadle, Albert Rosenfeld, Lou Del Puget, Bill Farnsworth, Jack Hickey, Bob Mabel, Arthur Hennessy, Harry Hamill, Sid Pearce, Peter Moyer, Billy Cann, Bob Hargroves, Herb Brackenridge, Harry Glanville, Ted Courtney, and Alf Dobbs. And that name's going to come up again soon. Okay. In another story, it was revealed that Daily Messenger was set to receive £50 for playing in the three games against New Zealand, and this drew the ire of one player who abandoned his interest in the professional movement. Alf Dobbs, who was named in the 20-man professional squad, was on tour with the Bowman Club at the time, and upon learning that he'd been selected, and he learnt by reading it in the newspaper, he asked for his return train ticket so as to get back to Sydney to commence training. The Bowman Club official contacted the, Mel- the MRU about the matter and um, they told him not to do anything until they heard back. August 13, Gildan wrote a letter to the editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and he basically, in this letter, it's a lengthy one. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go through it, but basically in this letter, he explains how the professionalism system works and how they're not going to be paid as a, an income. It's about looking after their... Uh, welfare financially so that they can play the game without fear of any financial loss ever while mm-hmm. they're playing. That's basically the whole thing. Because there'd been a lot of talk in there and a lot of the animosity that was being riled up by the rugby union was that these blokes would all be going off and they'd be getting paid a year's wage to play rugby union instead of doing an actual job Yeah, when that wasn't the case. So he's just basically setting the record straight there, even though all the players knew. And this was um, a speech that he gave to not just to the media, but to every single club when he was talking to them uh, and players when he was, you know, gathering up interest about, you know, who was going to join the professional movement for 1908. So he was pretty honest and, and open about all of that as well. Uh, August 13, the MRU hold a meeting at 5.30pm where, according to one official, the names of all the players connected with the professional movement will be expunged from the books of the union. Wow. So that meeting happened the day after Rugby League was formed. Yeah, wow. Uh, The Australian Star explains the causes of the revolt within the rugby playing circles. This is the one that went and asked the uh, Governor-General his views. Mm Mm-hmm. Unfair treatment of players by the MRU was spoken of. That indeed was referred to as the principal cause. Defensive action of some kind has been forced on many players. They found that while the association, which had hitherto had the sole control of local matches, had often handsome returns to dispose of at discretion, the men who were the backbone of the game were dealt with in a most niggardly spirit. Sums ridiculously small were allowed for their expenses. They practically had to cover their own expenses. It was simply a question as to whether they should take a determined stand against such a system or abandon their favourite sport altogether. Now, that's a very different uh, a different way of looking at it. Like, there's been a change there. Yes, they've gone from being very aggressive against professionalism to siding with the players somewhat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, August 13, the New Zealand professionals arrive in Sydney. Uh, there was two letters, brief ones, on August 14th sent in to the Australian staff from James Gilton and, and Daly Messenger. 
Um, both of those were basically denying any rumours that had been circulating in the weeks prior. One was about Bessinger being offered £50. He said that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. The other one was um, was Giltman saying that he also said that that was not true. Now, we've just come to the end of the week. Yeah. The worst week in Australian rugby union history, I suggest. <laughs> In that week, a rival code has been formed and they've lost 100 players. And the first professional games of, of rugby are about to be played on, on the Sydney soil. The Yeah, the New Zealand team has turned up. The professional New Zealand team <coughs> has turned up. Um, the rugby league have, have not only very concisely got their message out there as opposed to the convoluted message the rugby union had put out, but it was enough to change the media's perception of the new competition as well. Yes, and with 100 players, jumping ship also shows that the players are now, a lot of them, are getting sick of the way that rugby is treating them and how, despite all of this, they've still done nothing. And they've had all the opportunities to. They've still sat on their hands and done nothing to help the players. If anything, they've doubled down. They've ex- that's exactly what they've done. Mm. <clears throat> and they, the, the, knowing in hindsight, they never recovered from it. That's right. That's unbelievable to think about, isn't it? It is. August 16, the Bowman Rugby Union Club on tour to Mudgee received a telegram back from the MRU that Alf Dobbs was to have his ticket blocked. And if he wanted to come home, he had to do it at his own expense. So, and, and I mean, that's super petty. And the thing is that this guy's on tour with his, his teammates and club officials and coaches and stuff like that. This is, this is the, they're with this guy, you know, and, and that needs to be remembered in all of these situations that the players have something wrong done by them is that, you know, it didn't happen in isolation. This guy would have said, well, how am I supposed to get back to yes. other people that were on the tour? And they would have felt anger about it. Especially to remember what we went through before was because he's gone on a tour, but it's within New South Wales, mm-hmm. he doesn't get that allowance. That yeah. allowance only comes out if you go into another state. So he's gone over there and not got any allowance whatsoever. And if this had have happened to any other club, you know, south, north, west, it wouldn't have mattered. It would have been just fine, whatever. But because it was specifically Balmain who had a lot of gripes with the rugby union, this was possibly the the one-time rugby union needed to handle it a bit more softly mm-hmm. and just say, no, 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 he stays there until the tour ends. That would have been the smarter option because he then wouldn't have been able to line up for the New South Wales professional side but he also would have been able to get his ticket back home at no expense to himself. So they would have come across looking um, firm, but fair at the same time. But instead they said, no, no, cancel his tickets. That's it. So he was left with no option. And so it just, it it was something that forced the Bowman club because they were a lot closer, um, they were a much closer knit team. They were all, as you said, so one in, all in, we're with our mate. Mm-hmm. 
And the following day, the Balmain Club officials call upon their team, currently on tour, to immediately abandon their tour over the Dobbs incident and return home with him in protest. So they've now taken all of the tickets and say, oh, if he's not, we're, we're just going to bring all the guys home and he can come with us. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can understand the rugby union's reaction, but it, it, it was once another devastating mistake they made. Oh, yes. Now, August 17, also a big day because... New South Wales played against New Zealand in the first ever professional rugby game in Australia. The match was played under rugby union rules because no one in Australia knew how to play rugby league at this time. And it was won by New Zealand 12 to 8 in front of 20,000 people at the agricultural showground. Uh, and, and we're often racing, <laughs> you know. Now it's a reality. Yep. It's here now. Yeah. August 18, Dinny Lucky, the captain of Norse, has denied rumours that he's aligned with the league. August 19, Smith, Wynyard and Dunning left Auckland to join the professional New Zealand side in Auckland. The Auckland Rugby Union has disqualified all Auckland members of the team for life. Wow. August 21, the second game between New Zealand and New South Wales. New Zealand wins this 19-5. to uh, that was only in front of 4,000 people. It's only four days after the last game. Remember, mm-hmm. they're, they're playing these three games really closely together. Yeah, and that's something that, that at this time uh, was really common because they had to, because they were making money out of it, they played so many games. And you see that from the old Kangaroo Tours where they had like 40 matches. Yeah. Like it, it was it was basically what they did. And that they... It, it, so, like, we look at it now and we're like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> you know, how did they do that? This was really common for them back then. That's right. So the first game was on a Saturday. The second game was on Wednesday, which wouldn't have helped either. So yep. 4,000 people turned up for this game. It um, must have been some <laughs> – there must have been a little concern when that the, the crowd dropped so much. Possibly. I think at this stage, though, they would have been thinking – any money we get is going to help us, A, pay for the players, mm-hmm. and B, put some money in the bank so that we can get the season up and running. Uh, oh, boy, at yeah. this stage, they were they were hopeful of getting the competition up and running for, for 1908, yeah. but nothing was concrete at the stage. Mm-hmm. They were just trying to get everything together. So after the second game, it was revealed that Daly Messenger had been added to the New Zealand professional squad to tour the UK. The day after, the New Zealand Rugby Union has expelled all of the professional New Zealand players from Rugby Union in New Zealand. So they're allowed to play Rugby Union anywhere else, but not in New Zealand. Oh, that's that's an interesting one. Because uh, didn't you say earlier that the Rugby Union in New Zealand wasn't actually part of the greater rugby union um, governing body system. That's right. Yeah. And a lot of that comes down to, I, I assume, I've not looked into this. I did try and get someone to give me some information on this, but they didn't get back to me in time. Mm-hmm. Um, in the late 1800s, New Zealand was seen as part of the Australian colony, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they probably would have... Had... I believe it's actually in their constitution that they can still become a part of Australia. 
I'm not surprised. I wouldn't be surprised yeah. at all. But uh, yeah, so they had a vote whether they want to be part of um, Australia during Federation, and they voted not to be included. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't be surprised because rugby union was up and running prior to that, that the New Zealand rugby union was run by whatever the New South Wales rugby union was doing, and New Zealand New South Wales rugby union was run by whatever England rugby union said. Yeah, and that would have been the the run. So. <clears throat> New Zealand Rugby Union would have been under the guise of whatever the Australian rules were, which is why they didn't have their own organisation at an international level, I'm guessing, mm-hmm. because of all of that, the way that worked. Um, <clears throat> there I go again. August <laughs> <It was> 23, <laughs> Gilton is interviewed by the Evening News where he revealed the clubs will be formed and they will take part in competition matches in 1908. The clubs are to be established on the on the district basis, which is the same as those connected with rugby union. He also revealed, and I quote, we intend to play 13 men aside, not 15 as a present. I might add that we're now in communication with the Northern Union regarding a visit of a New South Wales team to England in 1908-09. Now, I'm guessing that they would have, that, that it would have all been by telegram back then. Yes. Um, I I wonder at what point they were in touch with the rugby football league in England, like when those when the first talks happened between the two competitions, um, or the organisers of the New South Wales Rugby League and, and the Rugby Football League, because that would be interesting to find that out. I don't think there would have been much, purely because the only time the Northern Union seemed to get involved. Was there something involved them? Mm-hmm. That seemed to be an attitude they took quite a lot over the next 60, 70 years. Mm-hmm. They were a lot more open to international football um, than they are obviously now. Mm-hmm. But that was because, you know, we were still building the game and expanding it and we wanted it to be bigger and better and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So that made sense. And there wasn't really a an international body that ran rugby league for quite a long time. I think the first one probably was performed in the late 30s. Mm-hmm. And France tried to get an actual proper setup put in place then so that they could form a World Cup, which got knocked back and, you know, they revisited after World War Two. Yeah. So, yeah, on that front, I think England probably would have only been involved when it, it involved them. So a tour yeah. going over there. Yeah, and I like that the the tours, even to this day, like you hear English supporters and people talking about tours. Tours was such a huge part of their uh, the the rugby league over there that, like, you know, they they'd have Australia go over and New Zealand go over and. It was just a big part of their season and they'd build up for it and there'd be a lot of money made out of it as well, which was obviously a key part of of continuing to have enough money to run the competition over there. So, yeah, that that makes sense. August 24, the third game between New South Wales and New Zealand was also won by New Zealand 5-3 to in front of 8,000 spectators. This is on a Saturday. Mm -hmm. That's not a bad crowd. Yeah. Arthur Hennessy was one of the touch judges and Gilchrist from New Zealand was the other one. August 28. <laughs> There's another good quote here. This is Lewis Abrams, who we mentioned at the very start. Mm-hmm. 
He suggested to the MRU that they take on board some of the concepts that the New South Wales Rugby League was offering players to switch to the professional code. He made it clear that his ideas was ensuring the players still earn no profit or gain from playing, but rather ensure that they do not play at a loss. His ideas were declared out of order and denied consideration in what became an increasingly heated meeting. Wow. <laughs> Abrams uh, then said, I told you four years ago that it would have to be done. Had anyone else brought the matter forward, it would have been all right. Wow. That's incredible. He's not even saying, <laughs> he's just saying that the players just don't want to be out of pocket and they're angry at him. Yeah. So remember back in 1903, he said you need to increase the um, the money you give them for touring. Mm. Not give them, as he said to me, it's not about giving them a profit. It's about increasing the amount you give them so they don't run at a loss because that's what they are doing at the moment. Yeah. And that's all he asked for. And they went, nope. They and then asked. Is, the thing is, too, this is before the, the competition had kicked off. Yes. We've seen three games played between the New South Wales team and in the New Zealand professional team, if they had have taken that on board, well, you, yeah. it makes you wonder what if. It does indeed. And, and it's he's not even saying to go all the way. He's just saying make sure they're not out of pro- pocket. That's it. Yeah. So they're not professional. <clears throat> it's incredible. It's incredible. And they, once again, they doubled down. They yep. they drew their line in the sand with that document they put out and they stuck by it steadfastly and that was it. <laughs> that was definitely it. On the same day, former rugby union player turned referee Edward Hooper is appointed the inaugural Rugby League Referees Association president. The New South Wales Rugby League intended to pay the referees and touch judges. However, Hooper stated that the referees would refuse payment in the first year and that their payments should be donated back into the league's coffers to help ensure its survival. Furthermore, the referees agreed that they would donate extra funds out of their own pockets to the game. The referee would donate threepence and the sideline officials a shilling, which was more for every game they officiated. The reason why it was more is because the referee was going to be paid a higher um, amount to referee the game mm-hmm. than the sideline officials. So between what they were giving back out of funds that they refused to take plus the donations out of their pocket, it meant that every official, referee and sideline official, was donating the same amount of money back. And, and that's, I think that's something that doesn't get talked about at all in rugby league. Um, and it should be because, you know, even today our officials cop a lot. You and me have defended rugby league referees and touch judges and, you know, it's a it's a very difficult job. It's a very fast game. Um, these people are experts in rugby league. They're literal experts in rugby league and the laws of the game. And you go back to the very first year of the game and, and the people that went before our current referees, they made that sacrifice to the for the greater good of the game. And I think we we really should celebrate that in rugby league today. And and you just never hear people talk about it, unfortunately. No. When you, and it's worth noting that in 1908, the only people involved in rugby league in Australia that were out of pocket were the referees. Yeah. And they chose to be. Yeah. Yeah. And we should we honestly we should celebrate that in our game. Um, we've got so many 
rounds that we celebrate other things in. And, and it, that would be a really great point to have a, a referee's round or an official's round. No, no a referee and touch judges round. Um, because, if, I mean, what a what a lovely sacrifice they make. Bloody oath. August 29, the New Zealand professional team sets sail from Sydney on the RMS Altona to Melbourne, beginning their journey from Australia to England. In Melbourne, they board the RMS Moldavia for the rest of their journey. September 2, the MRU begin an inquiry into acts of professionalism by all players who opposed the New Zealand rugby professional team recently, as well as anyone who played for Marrickville, which was the second grade club who played a combination in the early match of the third New South Wales-New Zealand game. All players were requested to front the committee. However, most players saw the futility in this exercise and didn't bother attending. Yeah, I mean, the horse has bolted at this point. Yeah, I mean, they've already made the decision to go play professional. What's the point of this meeting? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The next day, the Daily News in Perth commented on the professional New Zealand side. No longer will they be honoured with the prefix Mr, for they have cut the painter from amateur rugby and are drifting about looking for self first and glory afterwards. Wow. <laughs> Once again, they're they're attacking the morality of the players. That it's 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 pretty extraordinary. Yeah, the paper there, another up another Perth newspaper asked the New Zealand tour manager, Mr. Palmer, about tour finances. To which he replied, "There is no need to be secret about that. We have been guaranteed by the Northern Union three thousand pounds." We had to take 70% of the gross takings, and if they do not reach the above sum, the unions make the rest up. The journalist replied, the profits belong to the team. And Palmer responded, precisely, each player shares alike. <laughs> Even then, <laughs> after being told time and time again how it was going to work, they're still flabbergasted as to how this system will work. Wouldn't you love to say that interview? Oh, absolutely. There was there was actually quite a lot more questions involved, but they were the only ones that really stood out. But but let me get this straight: the money goes to the players. But you, that's what it sounds like you're saying to me. <laughs> but why would you do that? Hang on a second. You you guarantee a certain income for the players, and and they get money from the games. That almost seems justified. But it seems wrong at the same time. Yeah. It's it's such a, a funny mindset. It is. Uh, September 11, 1907, the MRU has disqualified all members who play for New South Wales and for Marrickville in the recent professional fixtures. The players are disqualified from playing with any club at any level that is affiliated with the MRU, not the New South Wales Rugby Union, so just in Sydney. Oh, that's interesting. They are not disqualified for life or for any team. The removal of these disqualifications can only be affected via the English Rugby Union. The players who have been disqualified are Charlie Headley, Ed Fry, Frank Cheadle, Dave Brown, Daly Messenger, Jim Devereaux, John O'Stunts, Lou DePeugier, Arthur Halloway, Sid Pearce, Billy Cairn, Harry Glanville, Jim Abercrombie, Harry Hamill, Herb Brackenridge, Bob Mabel, Bob Graves, Arthur Hennessy, Peter Moyer, Alf Dobbs, Ed Courtney and Albert Rosenfeld. The members of the Marrickville Club who also played the professional game have also suffered the same fate. Now, as as you were reading those names out, I, I grabbed my head <laughs> because the names you listed there, uh, like some of them are 
some of the all-time greatest players ever. Like, legends for not just what they did on the field, but off the field. Oh, yeah. And, You've got some great test players there from, oh, even from rugby union. Yeah. It's, and they're burning, the, they're burning the bridges themselves. Well, I think they figured at this point, if we show favoritism or weakness to players because of their, their status, mm. then that shows a crack. And we can't do that. So if we're willing to disqualify our absolutely elite players, that sends a message to everybody else. You know, don't mess with us. Yeah. That's what they were thinking. In the end, it just forced all of the elite players to just go, well, we don't need this. Yeah, and it just it put a full stop on, like it was all rugby league going forward for those people from that yeah. point on. And they invested in the future of the rugby league because there was no past to go back to anymore for them. And, yeah, it, it's quite it's quite extraordinary makes you wonder what would have happened if and we've talked about how they just the rugby union authorities were not willing to budge whatsoever makes you wonder if they had said you're banned during your duration as a professional but you can come back um how many would have gone back even if it was towards the end of their careers or at plays that maybe just their touring days were behind them or stuff like that um and how that would have affected things but they made sure that wasn't an option and they they did that to themselves that's right the other thing that's worth noting is most of those players that they've mentioned there were actually i'd say nearly all of them were in their 20s Mm. and if they weren't currently in the wallabies test side Mm-hmm. They were the first cabs off the rank just below the elite level. Yeah, it, like the, there are players there that had super long careers from this point on. Yeah, absolutely. So it's uh, it, it, it's it's not it like they nuts. were ban- it's not like they were banning guys that were in their late twenties, early thirties where you'd retire back then. Like they're banning uh, basically a generation of stars. Yes. The crazy thing about it is they. They made it clear that they have been disqualified from playing in the MRU, mm-hmm. but not disqualified for life or from any specific team. But they don't mention how long the disqualification from playing in the MRU is. So it means that they're allowed to play outside of Sydney, just not in the MRU, which is the Metropolitan Sydney competition. Now, do you know why they chose to put it that way? I. I've got a hunch that it's mm-hmm. because they didn't have maybe the full authority or they, they need to convene with the New South Wales Rugby Union first before imparting anything more serious than that. So all they can do is administer how their game is run, which is the Metropolitan League. Okay. Metropolitan Union. So that's what they would have done. So they would have said, right, they're going to be banned from us. It's up to the New South Wales Rugby Union if they want to extend that ban any further. And I think that's why they've kind of left it there. Mm-hmm. So I know it sounds a bit half-assed no. sort of thing, I guess, in one sense. Um, but it's not. It's it's trying just the, to do. It's the first step on yeah. the steps they need to do to ban them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're working within the limitations that they're set up in, so to yeah. speak. Yeah. 
So the following day after those bans, September 12, the New Zealand tour stops over in Sri Lanka and they play against a Ceylon 13 at Colombo. And they won that game 33-6. to Messenger scored two tries and six goals in his first game playing for New Zealand. Uh, the match was played under rugby union rules. And it's the only time one of the top rugby league nations has ever been to Sri Lanka to play a game. And it needs to be pointed out, Sri Lanka played New Zealand before Australia did. <laughs> before England did. Yeah. it's And Wales. You would, yeah, exactly. It's uh, you would win pub trivia with that one. Oh yeah. Yeah, actually, I don't think you'd win it. I think you'd bring it up in pub trivia, and someone would say Sri Lanka. What are you talking about? <laughs> but you would know, and that's all that matters. That's all that matters. <laughs> so the, I'm looking at the names of the Sri Lankan team because, yeah, we've got it on Rugby League Project. I yep. only recently had it uh, researched for me by. Uh, Jamie Murdoch, a New Zealand uh, rugby league historian. Mm-hmm. And he sent me the lineup there. And it, there's a lot of very, uh, what would we say, European, British sort of surnames. Yep. So I'm, I'm wondering if maybe the side, because I haven't been able to find out any information about them, but I'm wondering if the side is mainly made up of people from England, New Zealand, you know, that sort of place. Expats, yeah. And they're living there, a lot of expats. There was also two military men there. Okay. There was a Captain Bugden who was halfback, and there was a Lieutenant Scrumsher who was the second rower. Okay. But you've got surnames like Lockman, Patterson, Norman, Lilly, Williams, Clark, Helmsley, McMillan, Hannah, West, Ash, Gray. They're not the names that you would say sound like they're people from Sri Lanka. There's no Ratatungas. No. Uh, Muralitherans, uh, no. <laughs> Jay J- Saria. No, there's none of them. I, I, I only know the 1995 Sri Lankan cricket team. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, that, and that was played in front of about 3,000 people. Oh, wow. That's a fair crowd, actually. Yeah. If we got 3,000 people to watch a test match right now in Sri Lanka, we'd be pretty happy with that. I think it would be. Yeah. <laughs> September 22. Arthur Hennessy convenes a small gathering of South Sydney locals who are supportive or directly involved in the creation of the new professional rugby game in Sydney. The meeting was held in Hennessy's home at 9 Chapman Street, Surrey Hills, shortly after basketball's All Blacks had played the New South Wales side. The object of the meeting was the formation of a rugby league club in the South Sydney area. It was a humble beginning for what would soon become the South Sydney Rugby League Football Club. Just four men attended. Hennessy, SG Ball, Johnny McGrath and Billy Can. Ed Fry was going to be there, but prior commitments denied him. I got that little bit of information from South Sydney Rugby League Almanac. Uh, great great rugby league website if, you want to, if you're a South Sydney fan, you want to see everything that your team's done from day one. Mm-hmm. Uh, brilliant work over there. So on September 30, the New Zealand side arrive in London for the start of their tour. And on October 9, so they've had eight, nine days to rest after eight weeks on the seas. <laughs> they don't even get that these days, but they probably really badly needed it. Oh, they would have done. They would have done. Uh, New Zealand played their first official game of rugby league against Bramley, and they win 25-6 to six at Barley Mow in Leeds. Wow. They then play... 
three more games over the next uh, 10 days. They beat Huddersfield 19-8 on October 12, Witness 26-11 on October 16, and Broughton Rangers 20-14 on October 19. On October 22, the New South Wales Rugby Union notified the Queensland Rugby Union about the uh, recently disqualified players. The QRU endorses those disqualifications, and then they notify all of their country uh, unions. So that's all of the regional areas out there as well. Mm-hmm. The QRL is now preparing for representatives of the professional movement to make plans to commence a professional competition in Brisbane, not because they've heard of one, but because they they just figure that's what's going to happen next. That's the next step, yep. To which the QRU have said that they're very confident they will be able to deny and quash promptly. It's funny, every time that one of these organisations talk about how they'll just shut down this professional movement quickly, that mm. they don't. Yeah, I mean, they yeah, they never do. I'm just, when was it that uh, the competition started in Brisbane? 1909. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they did a pretty good job of that. <laughs> they squashed it hard. But uh, as, as I said uh, earlier, the the game initially in Brisbane anyway, might have been all over Queensland, actually, was amateur, entirely mm-hmm. amateur. Mm-hmm. There was a big, and we'll do an episode on it one day, about the the dramas that went on in Queensland rugby league, rugby union, all that amateur stuff during the early 20s. Yeah, how, yeah, because that's what I, I remembered. There was something about the around the 20s that happened. Yeah, with, they, uh, it was very similar to the Super League movement again, where you just had uh, teams that were just separating apart and they basically ran two competitions. Oh, wow, that's interesting. And then it all got unified the year after. Yeah, far out. Newcastle did a similar thing over the Dan Davies affair, which was in the episode we had about 1917. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they, they they separate themselves apart. They have their little protest. Everyone goes, you know what, this is stupid. Let's just get back together and get back to playing football. And then that's what they did. It's interesting that that's happened a few times in rugby league um, all, all yes. around the world. You know, even the United States, it's happened about three or four times. Um, and yet it never happened between professional rugby and the amateur rugby. No, that's right. Uh, so we go forward and we've got into October 23. There's a few more games here for New Zealand. They have a 5 or draw at Wakefield. October 26, they beat Leeds 8-5. October 30, they beat St. Helens 24-5. Big win, that one. November 2, they play their first game in Wales and they defeat Merthyr 27-9. That would have been a new team as well because in 1908-09, there was a bunch of new teams introduced uh, from Wales mm-hmm. into the Northern Union competition. There might have been mm-hmm. four teams. Oh, wow. And so setting up their own Welsh league, trying to grow the game there as well. Yeah. And it did not work. No. I think most of those teams were gone within two or three years. One of yeah, them might, t- might have survived for a little bit longer, but that was about it. It feels like it's been like that for forever in Wales. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> uh, November 5, New Zealand beat Keithley 9-7. Four days later, they suffer their first loss to the tour as they lose to Wigan 12-8. The tour has completed its first month and recorded eight wins, one draw and one loss. That's a the- pretty good effort. When you think about how long it's taken to get there, Um you know, they're embarking on something completely new for, I would say, 
the majority of these players have ne- never been that on the opposite side of the planet. Um, and they're playing a new game. They were. That's the first 10 games of rugby league for all of them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, because they've gone from playing 15 a side to 13. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. And the other thing, too, is it was revealed just before the tour started that the English Rugby Northern Union officials had decided that they would try and organise a schedule for the New Zealand side so that they would play against weaker opponents early so that they could get a handle on the rules and the play. Mm -hmm. So that's probably why they've had such a good start. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it'd be interesting to know what, and, and I, th- I always think of Dally Messenger, like uh, I would say most Australian rugby league fans do when it comes to this tour. Um, it'd be interesting to know what he thought about playing on a field with fewer defensive players with the 13 versus 15 aside. Um, obviously, it worked for his sort of game. Yes. Uh, I'd, I'd like. I wonder if he's quoted anywhere as talking about that. The the big change I think was that it was two two wide forwards that were taken off the field. It wasn't backs or anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people were a bit uncertain about that change, thinking that it was going to make it a lot harder for all of the players to keep up because the the amount of cardio required was insane. Mm-hmm. But uh, all they found was it just made the game more exciting to watch. Yeah. And has done for 100 plus years. Yeah. Some things don't change. <laughs> I just wanted to see where these teams that they claim were the weaker ones, where they were sitting on the ladder. Uh, let's see. We've got Bramley. Yeah, they finished last in 1907-08. Huddersfield were 15th. Mind you, there was 27 teams playing then. Yeah, yeah, that that's the thing that the league structures. People that don't know the league structures and schedules in English rugby league over its history, so, are sometimes absolutely outrageous when you look at them, and you wonder how like forty game seasons and stuff like that are not unusual whatsoever. And what we see now in the Super League season, which we still consider long is extreme outliers to what they're used to in terms of games played in the year. Yes. So just for an example, not in 07-08, teams played between 30 and 34 league games <laughs> that year. They did they also have the challenge they did have the challenge cup. Yeah. They also played in like there was a, a Northern Union Cup, there was some other thing as well. Lancashire Cup finals. There was – then they had the uh, the county matches mm-hmm. where Yorkshire, Lancashire, Cumberland, they all played against one another, and then they brought in other counties later on as well. And then they had all these tour games. So if you were one of the elite players, you were playing 40 games a year comfortably. Yeah. They seem to have year. a very a different – like with professionalism over there, they seem to have – and I think maybe it probably comes out of association football, which we call soccer, yep. um, that, you know, you, you're a professional player. You play as many games as you possibly can. And it, whereas over here it was a little bit different. It was um, you're a professional player and we use a, a season structure that we're used to 
to, and with you you play that season structure, whereas over there it was it was kind of different. That's right. So the loss to Wigan was probably understandable because they played they finished fourth this year. They had yeah. twenty three wins and eight losses. Yeah, Wigan Wigan's been one of the greatest clubs in the world f- since day one. <laughs> and, uh, for St Helens, just for the St Helens fans that we might have left. Uh, New Zealand beat them 24-5 on October 30. In 07-08, yeah. Ze- uh, St. Helens were 25th on the ladder with seven wins from 32 games. Yeah. <laughs> it's all right. They get they get better in 100 years from now. <laughs> so moving on from there, uh, over the next two weeks, they play another five games. They lose to Barrow. They beat Hull. They lose to Lee. They lose to Oldham. They lose to Runcorn. Then on November 30, they beat a, convi- a combined outfit from Dewsbury and Batley, 18-8. to eight. In December, they beat Swinton, Rochdale. They lose to Bradford, and then they lose to Halifax. And then December 18, they come up against a very strong Yorkshire rep side, and they dominate them 23-4 in probably mm-hmm. one of their best performances of the tour. Mm-hmm. December 19, the very next day, the media reports that a letter received from the tour manager claims that the tour is set to record a profit of £10,000. That's outrageous. <laughs> That's so just, much money. They're halfway through the tour. Probably, actually, yeah. probably even just less than that. And it's £10,000 profit. So, and the, the players are guaranteed a percentage of that. Yes, and, and there was a three thousand pound gratuity set down aside to help cover their expenses, which has probably also already been paid for. Yeah, and, <laughs> and I mean, all of these players would have known how much money they were making, and every time they ran out in front of a crowd, like they would have done rough estimates. Um, what an in- incredible success financially! Like, and everyone would have known it. That's the other thing too. Um, the Northern Union players would have known it. It would have been filtering back to Australia. would have been filtering through all of rugby union in England. Everyone would have known what was going on and how much money was being made because they, they stated it in the media. They were always open about like what the cuts would be and how much players would get and stuff. Um, what an extraordinary amount of money. Now, I didn't think I had this, but I just I did just find it in my uh, files. Mm-hmm. I, I've got a, I've got the crowd figures from the tour, but also for a bunch of the games, how much money they made off, how much money was made off the gate for the entire match. Oh wow! So, for example, the game against Broughton, the fourth game of the tour, which New Zealand won twenty to fourteen, twenty four thousand people in attendance made one thousand one hundred pounds. Wow, that's incredible! And that's a they, big crowd. The game against Wigan that they lost twelve eight. 30,000 people turned up for 1,500 pounds. Wow. They would have known. They would have ran out in the field and known. That, yeah. What a, what a strange experience for a bunch of, of young men who had taken this chance and knew there was no going back. And then you go on this long boat ride, takes you so long to get there, and then you run out and it's like, Oh, wow. It must have been beyond their wildest dreams. Absolutely. They're making hundreds of pounds every game comfortably. Yeah. yeah. And, and you, I mean, you were saying that uh, 
the average worker's wage in Sydney was two hundred pound a year. Yeah. Like they're, I mean, they're effectively getting rich on this tool. Yeah, it's it's the tool lasted five months. They got one year's pay in five months. It's crazy. And and probably more given how much the profits were. Yeah, because they got they got a, a split of of how much was made. And so you think how much of a big announcement that was in the Sydney media when it arrived there. Not not just how big the money is, but how quickly it was accrued. And, you know, for any players, and even for the MRU and New South Wales Rugby Union, mm. to be looking at that and going, oh, my God, it works. How did they? How I mean, did... they, would have, they would have known it works, but they yeah, thought, yeah. oh, my God, not only did, did it work, the whole professionalism thing, but now everyone knows how much money we make <laughs> and, and every they, time there's a tour. And they stuck to their guns. Oh, yeah. They were like, they. everyone knows how much money we've been making out of these tours this whole time and not giving any to the players. Let's keep doing it anyway. <laughs> how long for? Let's do it until at least 1995. They'll, they'll forget about it. Don't worry about it. Cricket season's coming up. They'll forget about it. Craziness. Absolute craziness. So two days after that announcement of the £10,000, James Gilton receives a message from Mr. Platt, the president of the English Northern Union, and it's an invitation to have an Australian-based side sending a team to tour England the following year. The, the team is expected to depart Australia in August of 1908. They'll be touring England at a similar time that the the Rugby Union Wallabies will also be there. Mm-hmm. So there's actually a lot of opportunities for a lot of players in England to go on tour to England next year. So that means that if you're not being picked, and if you know you're not going to get picked to, to go on the Wallabies, mm-hmm. and as we know, there's a little bit of favouritism in there, if you're not going to get picked, you'll just go, well, I'll just go to league. Yeah. They're doing a tour. And yeah, they'll have I, less players to pick from, so there's a greater chance that I'll get picked to go over there. And wasn't the touring side, there was something like 40 players on it? Something like like it was a really big touring side, wasn't it? It was a pretty big squad. I'll, yeah. I'll just pick that up. It was because they had a very long schedule, and they kept adding players to it as the season was going on. Because I'm just thinking, like, if you are if you were a rugby a rugby player in Sydney – and you wanted to, t- you just flat out wanted to tour. To f- take the money side out of it, take it the what game you're playing out of it. Um, if you didn't get selected in the Wallabies tour, th- you know there was a lot of players that were leaving Australia for England that were playing, you know, quote unquote rugby that year. Yeah. So you had your chance, you know, the, and the league team had 36 players. That's a big squad. That's a real big squad. And how big was the Wallabies one? Two, four, six, eight, nine, ten, twelve, fourteen, sixteen, eighteen, twenty, twenty-two, twenty-four, twenty-six, twenty-eight, thirty, thirty-one players. Yes, uh, like that's sixty plus players going. Sixty-six players heading over. You, <laughs> if you weren't selected in those sides, you were struggling that year. <laughs> That's exactly right. 
<laughs> and so they were both going to be, like they were, they were both set to be in England around the same time. And one group of them not making money and the other group making money, doing the doing pretty much the same thing. Yeah. Although for the kangaroos, it was not as great an experience as it was for the all golds. All golds, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of things that worked against the kangaroos, and we'll go into them in depth in the later episodes, but basically they were met with a lot of worker strikes and a lot of horrible weather. Mm-hmm. So well, in northern England? Yeah, it's hard to believe. Yeah, that's a shocker. <laughs> uh, so to round out the uh, the episode, the New Zealand had two more games left on the tour. On December 26th, they played Hunslet and had an 11-all draw, and on December 28th, they beat Salford 9-2. All right. And the game against Hunslet, 19,000 people in attendance for 723 pounds. And the game against Salford, 12,000 people in attendance for about 400 pounds. Wow. I love that you've got the gate taken. That's, that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. And then all those All Golds players had a long boat trip back home as well. Well, the crazy thing is, is that it's uh, it was an eight-week journey mm-hmm. over there eight weeks back. And then when you consider someone like Daly Messenger then got picked on the 08 tour for the Kangaroos and then went another eight weeks over another eight weeks back. In the space of two years, he spent 32 weeks on a boat. Yeah. that I mean, I hope he liked, hope he liked <laughs> that aspect of it. <laughs> the, that's, that's something that I find as an insane sacrifice to make. That can't be good on you. No, it can't. It can't. And, and when and you consider like, how much he was being moved around everywhere to play football in 1908 to promote the game, mm. that to me, not what he did on the field as a player, but the sacrifices he put himself through to help this game, things like that. 32 weeks out of 104 sitting on a boat. Mm. That's insane. You think about that. That's what makes him an immortal, what he gave of himself to the game. It transcends what he did as a player. Yeah, and he he seemed to be very well aware of his standing and and what he was doing for the game. Um, obviously, he, he got paid for his time, which was the whole point. But um, you and me have talked about how he played so much football, and like we we haven't even talked about the rep games in Australia that he played, like or his senior career. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, before that, yeah. So, like he played an extraordinary amount of football, did an extraordinary amount of time just sitting on a boat, and um, you know we've talked about how he got to a point where he just couldn't do it anymore eventually, but. You know, that sacrifice he made, it, it really, I mean, that's why we always talk about Daly Messenger even to this day, because he's so important. And, Absolutely. You know. Yeah, there's an important, uh, well, not so much important. There's an interesting thing that he said back when it was being suggested that he was going to sign with the professional movement and he, he was going to play for the All Goals. Mm-hmm. And he flatly refused it. Yes. He was asked a day later about his comments there and whether he was actually going to play professional rugby. And he said to one of the journos, 
I'm not going to go and play rugby union. I actually am considering retiring from rugby altogether and going about doing sailing full time because he was a very good uh, yachtsman. Mm-hmm. His family all, all worked on boats. So that was something that he said to put out into the news to throw everyone off the scent a little bit. Mm-hmm. So they all thought that he was just going to leave rugby union anyway and take up boating. So if he turned out playing for the New South Wales side, they just go, oh, he's already decided to leave. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And it, it's fascinating. You see little comments like that. And at the time I was thinking, no, nah, that's not that important because he, it was not honest, but he was just throwing him another curveball. But looking back on all of this, you see how much of it was the media jumping at shadows and then the rugby union officials responding to the shadow jumping and mm-hmm. responding and jumping to those as well. And yeah, the panic as soon as the all goals about to turn up and they, that was when they physically realized that professionalism was legitimately here. Yeah. That's when they started to panic hard, but by then it was too late and they knew it was too late. Yeah. So they went harder at the players about to jump ship. The thing that I find crazy is that they continued that until 1995. Yeah. We're talking about the space of like three or four seasons, three or four years in the early 1900s. And, and we're like, I can't believe they didn't see the writing on the wall or they did see it and they just refused to live in our reality. <laughs> And they also, kept that up until 1995. Well, they, they did this whole moral high ground thing through yeah. the media an awful lot. And I think they did it through the media more than they'd actually did it face-to-face with players because they wanted to put out a public display of, you know, we're, we're strict and we're stern and this is what our rules are and we're not going to be swayed on it because we're strictly amateur. They did it through World War One. almost – Horrible what they were doing there because they would mm-hmm. they would talk about all of the great rugby union players who sacrificed their life and died on the battlefields. They're glorifying how much, how great, how how much moral integrity their players had for for dying in a war. Mm. Whereas rugby league didn't do this. Mm. They didn't mention all their players who went and died at war. They didn't put out a list of everyone like rugby union would do on a regular basis. There was less gloating from the rugby league front on that, that scent. And the other thing that got me to about this episode is one thing that was known to rugby union, hell, probably even to the entire public at the time, was that there were Olympic Games being played in 1908. And rugby union was one of the contests that was going to be played for. Mm-hmm. And you can only enter the Olympics if you're an amateur why did the rugby union not once did they mention if you stick with us, you'll get to go and play for Australia in the Olympics and you might win a gold medal? Because that would have meant something to a lot of those players in those days because getting a gold medal as a rugby player of either code is unheard of. Yeah. Because they just, it's the only time they ever did it, I believe. Well, it's interesting when they brought it back in that um, I remember when they brought the rugby union sevens in, which, you know, it's not rugby union really. It's, it's, silly it's like 2020 cricket well, um rugby league in anything. 
Yeah. And they said, oh, this is going to draw a lot of rugby league players over. And all it did was maybe draw some local A-grade players to play international rugby union. And that's literally all it ever did. And, uh, you know, a lot of those players ended up switching back to rugby league. So didn't do much. But I just find it really interesting that the rugby union authorities for like nearly 100 years, they they kept up this silliness of, you know, the supposed purity of the amateur game. And they would, you know, attack the professional side of the game and, you know, go on, go on so many campaigns. I mean, we all know what happened in France. Um, well, the, the France movement is not too dissimilar to the Australian one in the fact that it was, uh, there was a lot of discontent with the rugby union over there, although it was much more passionate over in France. And there was a lot of, um, openness about rugby the rugby league movement in france much like there was in australia mm-hmm. like they just come and said yeah players are going to get paid and this is what they're going to get and this is how much this is why they're going to get and this is how it's going to happen and this is what's going to and because it was so open and out there and free to talk about instead of being speculated and rumored against there was no animosity towards it and the people of france absolutely loved it yeah they swarmed to it and the game grew so fast in france I don't think it's grown as fast anywhere in any country as it did in France in that first first few years. Mm-hmm. The growth there was just ridiculous. So, but it's had a lot of, there's always, with every movement, there's always a little bit of similarity to one of the other ones somewhere else. Not entirely, but bits of it are similar. Yeah. Uh, the... The movement in England was uh, was quite a bit more different, but it also came from similar things about player disconsent about the governing body hoarding money. For the Northern Union, it was more, and I'm, I'm dumbing this down an awful lot, but for them it was more about the fact that most of the biggest gates and the biggest crowds and the best matches were between Northern, Union, uh, Northern teams. Mm-hmm. And yet the Southern teams were getting a lot more benefit out of that money because the rugby union was being run down there. Yeah. So the Northern Union was giving them all of the money and the money was all going south. So they went, why don't we just take keep that money for ourselves and look after ourselves? Mm-hmm. So that's what they did. But there's obviously, it's a schism. There's a lot more to it than that. But that was sort of a, a, a motivator there. And that's not too dissimilar to the players and clubs in Australia during the two years leading up to rugby league being formed, being very, very angered by the the union not helping them maintain their grounds or their venues by taking all their games to the SCG where they can make bigger profits and have less expenses. Then they went and bought their own ground to try and maximise that profits even more instead of helping the clubs look after their venues. So it's it's funny how this happens. There was another bit of an incident which I couldn't get dates on, but it came about that during 1906-07, the trustees of the Birchgrove Oval were getting frustrated by the fact that Balmain were not playing many games there anymore. Mm-hmm. And they were going to discuss whether they should say to Balmain, you need to find another home ground. And this was another thing that just was, was another thing added to Balmain's anger as a club towards the rugby union. 
I said Balmain had a few things going on there where they were just so irritated with the way the rugby union was. Um, and there's there's a bit of media around the 1908 to 1912 period there where Balmain officials were referred to in the media as Balmaniacs. Because <laughs> they were just constantly irritated by governing bodies. <laughs> and it happened again like in 1909. We did it in that episode there. Uh, about how they were they were getting very irritated by the New South Wales Rugby League over the final. Yep, yeah. That they forfeited. Again, they're just a really close knit, passionate group. It's one for all, all for one. And there's almost this doesn't matter what happens, the, whatever decision they make. There's this feeling that they must be rebelling against the governing body for some reason. <laughs> it's just. I was there a lot during that pre pre World War One days. It's interesting. I, I always think that because rugby league is an interesting sport. I follow I follow so many different sports. I don't generally talk about it, but I follow heaps of different sports. And rugby league has some strange things that are ingrained in within the psyche, I guess, of the sport. And I often think that it must be stuff that is has come down to us from when the game was formed and just certain things that just certain ideals and things about the game. And I think it's all been good for the game because the thing I love about rugby league is that at the end of the day, everyone's kind of looking to get a fair go, you know, and we don't like, seeing teams like when we see a team say break the salary cap we get very angry about it because we don't think anybody should be cheated out of something um and i I just think that we see certain things come down through the years that stay within the game and do they get you know is that the culture of our game is that something that had got passed down from player to player to coach to fan to everything over decades and decades. And I think it must be. I, I, I think that that's where the culture of rugby league is because the rugby league culture is, is very earnest, you know? It is. I think, though, in recent years, and I'm talking from the 1990s onwards, mm-hmm. especially since the, the Super League War, mm-hmm. is the players are still oh, – sorry, the fans are still not too distant from the fan base in 1908. Yeah. They're the working classes. They're turning up. They're supporting the game. They're with the game no matter what, through thick and thin. They are always there. They are constant. And the game has proven time and time again that even when it's falling apart and shit's going wrong everywhere, the fans keep it ticking. They keep it functioning. And it's always been that way. But the players have got more and more removed from the fan base. Instead of being going to the pub after the games and having a drink with someone and then you go and work with them Monday to Friday as well. You you don't see the players out in the wild anymore. They're all wrapped up in their club doing their stuff because they've got to. They're professionals. They're full-time. It's their job, yeah. yeah. It's their job. And it's what you expect of them. But they're not with the everyday person anymore. They've become, yeah, they're, become they're two not different in, groups. Yeah, they're not ingrained in the the same community for the most part. Because, exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, and it's just it's just different. Like it's not better or worse. It's just different. Um, that you know what Penrith uh, the other day had a 
gigantic signing session for their supporters. And I was thinking about how, you know, that you've got this very successful club over the last number of years and all of these players that have achieved some really extraordinary things recently and, and yet here they were in the sweltering heat signing as many signatures as they possibly could for thousands of people. Like it was literally thousands of people. And they're just there in, in big tents, you know, in 40 degrees signing signatures. And I thought, you know, it's one of the cool things about our game that, you know, the players do get on really well with the fans for the most part. And yes, clubs make an effort to, you know, and th- these days they tend to put on functions and events so that it happens. And they don't need to do that, but they do do it, which is really cool. I think I wonder if it's because the fans today, much like the fans in 1908, have one thing in common, and that is some animosity towards the media because they have animosity towards our game. So I think they just had a common de- enemy the whole time. Yeah, there's look, there's definitely an us versus them culture in rugby league and an us versus, you know, the, the people that are trying to keep us in a box sort of thing in rugby league. Yeah. And I think that's one of the great things about rugby league. I think that's why the game has been able to, you know, make rule changes and things like that over the years because there have been people within the game that have said, look, it can be done better. We don't have to do the same thing over and over again. We can do things better. And we've seen some rule changes have been really, really massive rule changes. And for the most part, they've been be- made the game better every step of the way. Um, and when, like, when I, th- when I think about everything we've just talked about in this episode, I think about that. I think about a a bloke that grew up in Mount Druitt called Jerome recently, who went on to play with his local district club, and had so much success for them. And then next year will be earning one point two million dollars a year to play footy for a different club. But if you're not happy about that, and you don't see that as a success you've missed the point of rugby league because to me that is like, that's a fairy tale, you know, and that would be to Jerome and his entire family. And we see that happen over and over and over again. That's why when I see a player get paid, like, you know, when, when a player signs a a 10 year deal, like Jason Talmalolo did for a million dollars a year, that to me is like, that's vindication for everything that happened. In 1903, 1904, 1905, and so on and so forth. That's what it was all about. And, you know, those people that set up the game in the early days and they were geniuses. And I wonder what they would think when they see um, the modern day players and everything that they get from the game and what the game has become. I'd love to know what they would think about it. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, that's the other thing too, when we were talking about it in the episode is. It took them eight months after forming the New South Wales Rugby Football League, eight months to start their own competition. Mm-hmm. Eight months, and it di- and it has never once missed a beat. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I can't fathom to believe 
how much work went into that eight months starting with with no not a dollar in the bank yeah that's remarkable it really is and all of those those names that you talked about in this episode that like legendary names legendary names you know people that have their names put on stands some of the 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 greatest sports stands in world sport you know and and these are the men that we're talking about it's really really cool I i love hearing about it and like you've done so much work over the last few months and so much research on this you've found so many cool facts that um, you know, it, it's, it's been extraordinary and, and like, oh, I thank you for letting me be a part of it because it's, you've done so much work. You really need to be commended for it. Ah, it's all good then. Cause I, look, I, I love doing this as much as anyone. Cause mm-hmm. the thing that drives me when it comes to doing research is I love coming across something that I learned for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the great thing about it. But yeah, so what we're going to do with this is it doesn't end here. It's been a few years since we've done a history thing, and now we're going to be going all in this year. So what we're going to do is we're going to track. Like, this is the first episode in this series. The next episode we'll be looking at January and February of 1908, and then we do a March and April 1908, so on and so forth, until we get all the way through to the end of the uh, 1908 year. And we want to get it so it gets to the point where you've got everything in full detail, but when we get to the very end, if you want to keep finding out more, you can just go to a 1909 episode, plug into that, and then you go through that season because <clears throat> that was that was the make or break year for Rugby League, mm-hmm. and that was an insane episode to put together as well. I did that one. I think we did that two or three years ago. But uh, yeah, yeah. People, get, if you search for the nineteen oh nine Fergie on the Freak episode, um, you'll find it. That's already up and ready to listen to right now. That's right. So you can tune into that. And there's, I think we might have done a, a Pat Walsh one as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there, there's a heap of them from around this period of time that all tie in together. So you can. As, as I was saying during the, the study episode, you can branch off into those ones if you want to find out more. I've, I've tried not to repeat myself too much through this episode with other stuff we've already done. So if you want to find out more, you can go to those other episodes and, and get more from those. Uh, so, yeah, we'll, we'll wrap this one up and I'll get back to doing research for the next episode <laughs> in a few weeks' time, which is going to be another huge one because we're looking at the – birth of all of the or nearly all of the rugby league clubs from the very first season you can finally end the debate about who was officially the first rugby league club Gleep. and <laughs> well, i don't like that andrew andrew <laughs> uh yeah so we'll, we'll go through that i mean given that we discussed south sydney there i might even say them uh, but, yeah, I want to say uh, thanks to Sean Fagan and his book, The Pioneers of Rugby League. If you want to learn more about the early days of, of rugby league, definitely read that book. I made a very, very determined effort to not go to that book very much for this. I didn't want it to be me retelling his book. And I also wanted it to be um, a timeline. So I needed newspaper articles. And I also wanted to show – as we did in this, 
the way the media was responding to things and their role that they played, which wasn't hugely covered in Sean's book, mm-hmm. um, basically because he did so much other research on the important stuff about, you know, the player movement and all that sort of stuff. And uh, look, just get his book. It's it's the best book on rugby league you'll ever find. And a really uh, nice dude too. Like uh, we've independently had dealings with him over the years and he's one of those those people that, if you ask him a question, he will give you the longest, biggest answer he can and ask if you've got any more questions. Just amazing person, a really amazing person. Absolutely. Uh, I used a lot of – I relied almost entirely on newspaper articles mm-hmm. and like my own research from previous articles and stuff that I've written. So the tour, the, the tour um, crowds and – and gate takings that I got at the end there, that came from Irvin Saxton, who did a lot of research on all of English rugby league history back in the 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. So uh, thanks to him and also to Tony Collins for uh, the feedback he gave us there on one particular gentleman. And, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll continue this series in a few weeks when we get to January and February of 1908. Excellent. Well, thank you for everyone for listening. Make sure you go and check out Rugby League Project, which is Andrew's website, along with other people as well. Um, and check out his Patreon as well. What's your Patreon, Andrew? Uh, Patreon.com slash project. Excellent. And uh, we will catch you all for the next episode, which is coming up. <laughs>